This week, we start the show with a technical segment about working with Nmap, Volners, and Flanscan. In the security news, lightning cables that steal passwords, malicious code in your VRAM, creating a TJ Hooper for InfoSec, Linux 5.14 unhackable Wii has been hacked, hackers versus dictators, and more. Finally, we have a pre-recorded interview with Benjamin Musler, the senior security researcher at Acunetics, who joined to discuss iframe security. All that and more on this episode of Paul's Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady, it's Paul's Security Weekly. Qualys has brought together vulnerability management and patch management, letting security teams discover vulnerabilities and apply patches immediately, all within a single unified app. Sign up for a free trial of Qualys VMDR, vulnerability management, detection, and response today at securityweekly.com forward slash Qualys. And now a man, a man who's so at the top of his game, it's like he hasn't showered for a week. The one, the only, Paul Asadori. Hey, welcome everyone to Paul's Security Weekly. It's episode number 709, recorded on September 2nd, 2021, right here in G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island. Lee, we missed the top of your introduction to me, like the first three, four words maybe, got cut off. Big two. It was a premature introduction. It's all right though. I got the gist of it. It's all good. You want to go again? Read it again. Did you type it out? Read it again. Read it again. Read it again. All right. And now... A man who's so at the top of his game, it's like he hasn't showered for a week. The one, the only, Paul Asadori. Hey, thanks, Lee. It's good to be here. <laughs> thanks for joining us. <laughs> Mr. Jeff Mann is here with us as well. Jeff, welcome. I am looking crispy and sounding crispy because I finally have high-tech audiovisual equipment. That's right. Woo-hoo. You've got a new microphone. It's very prominent right on your camera, too. It is. Uh, until I figure out what to do with it, it's going to stay right in front of me. There you go. Well, it, sound, it sounds beautiful. Sounds beautiful. Thank you, Thank you uh, Security Weekly Productions. You're welcome. What? Uh, there's a Tyler was supposed to be joining. I don't know what happened. Everyone, everyone got busy tonight. Uh, except probably for got hurt us. somehow. He's probably in an emergency room. No, let's Tyler. hope not. Let's hope not. Let's hope not. But I do have some announcements for you. If you want to stay in the loop, all things Security Weekly, visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe. Subscribe to your favorite podcast via your favorite podcast catcher on your favorite podcast or your favorite YouTube channel. You can sign up for your favorite mailing list and join your favorite Discord server because Security Weekly should be your favorites of all of those. Uh, We're live streaming on Twitch and YouTube as well. You can find information about all of our shows and how to subscribe at securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe. All righty. This is now a technical segment on Nmap mm-hmm. and Flanscan. And what's interesting, I covered um, Cloudflare's Flanscan on a previous technical segment some time ago. So I wanted to give you a little update on that and <clears throat> show you some examples of what I've been working on to create. Uh, it's something similar and, and I think uh, pretty interesting. So as our listeners know, Flanscan builds a Docker container with Nmap and the Volner script. So Volner scripts are uh, and I've dug a little more into it. They are NSE scripts, so plugins for the Nmap scanning engine that are written in Lua that look at the Nmap output and then 
do some matching against vulnerabilities. So if it's open on SSH and there's an SSH banner there that Nmap has uh, reported on, it will go and try and match all of known vulnerabilities with it. If you're thinking that that could lead to false positives, you would be correct in your assumption. And I'll talk more about that uh, in an upcoming webinar. Um, so uh, back to Flanscan, it was released some time ago by Cloudflare. And um, when I looked at their container, so it's a Docker container-based thing, it does not build MMAP from source code. Uh, it actually pulls that from the Alpine uh, Docker build, base build, and does not uh, compile it from source code. However, it does include some Python scripts that basically take the Nmap XML output and report and build HTML reports based on that. It even has things that you can post them to AWS. Like I said, the project hasn't been very well maintained. Not a whole lot of updates. For example, there's a Docker issue that I'll show you how to get around. And there is a pull request for this project that allows CSV exporting. I've not merged that pull request <clears throat> yet, but I think that's uh, an interesting feature. So just to update you on how you get Flanscan running, because it is still, I still include that as a tool in my arsenal, because it's still a really fast and easy way to convert XML to HTML output uh, all in a container. So you basically clone the repository, go into the directory and start editing the make file. And what I found was <clears throat> in one of the updates, they are dropping all the capabilities and then adding one back. So Linux capabilities are essentially permissions for running processes that can grant said processes uh, or revoke process uh, permission based on Linux capabilities. They're very well documented. I've talked about them in the past. When you run a Docker container, you can grant that Docker container Linux capabilities or not. The Linux uh, container on Docker comes pre-configured with a set of v capabilities that are on by default. These capabilities essentially give a non-root user the ability that only abilities that root would normally be able to do. So in Nmap's case, it needs uh, the raw socket access to be able to craft packets. Normally, you have to be root to do that. However, conceptually, if you <clears throat> drop all the capabilities for the Nmap container in this case, and you grant it the net raw capabilities, ideally, it should be able to run without root. However, on my Ubuntu 20.04 systems, it does not do that, uh, and you get error messages. There are, I think I did at some point look at what other capabilities it needs, because I think it was the ability to, to write files or read files in, in the directory. I think it was writing of files that it needed to do. So there were some wonky things with that. So really, all I did to fix this issue in this case is I just removed <clears throat> the dropping of those capabilities. And so it runs with the default level of capabilities uh, that comes with whatever Docker version that you're using on a Linux system. I called that good enough. I mean, it's slightly less secure. I mean, you can go crazy granting and revoking Linux capabilities. In the end, this was something I was just running as a tool in my workstation. So I wasn't too concerned about this. If you were then to go deploy this container in production or on servers that are internet facing or something like that, I do recommend that you create a better profile uh, for it to run. Of course, keeping in mind that 
Nmap requires certain capabilities that are normally reserved for the root user. So I basically added this make file, created my own little uh, line called my HTML so I could um, uh, make a build to build the project first. Uh, and then I edit my IP addresses. So make build builds the container. Um, when you actually go to run it, you're going to do make my HTML, which simply runs that Docker command that's above. Um, you're going to also, before you actually run it, you're going to edit the uh, shared directory ips.txt, enter your targets uh, and or subnets that you want to scan. Then type make my HTML, which basically runs this Docker command. Can I highlight this? Yeah, that Docker command right there. So okay. um, when you do that and your scan is finished running, you will get XML files in this directory. And you can see these are the raw uh, Nmap files. Actually, can't go to the second second page for some reason. Hold on. Let me just switch that out. Let me see. Can I go back to this now and scroll? Yes, I can. Um, <clears throat> so you can see the XML results are there. If you want to view the HTML, it puts it in that directory in shared reports and then report underscore and the timestamp. It's timestamp. Now, Flanskin is still useful. Obviously, they should probably merge in that pull request. I reviewed it. It looks fine to me, but who am I to judge? Not my project. They should probably merge that in because I think, you know, obviously much of security is accomplished today in Microsoft Excel. So it'd be nice to have this output in a CSV file. But I did notice that it installs whatever version of Nmap comes with Alpine 3.9. Alpine is the small Linux distribution commonly used in containers. And <clears throat> recently at this year's DEF CON, Fyodor uh, Gordon Lyons announced that there'd be a new release of Nmap, which is 4.9. Uh, sorry, 7.9.2 uh, is the latest version. So I wanted to create a small container that I could always be running the latest version of Nmap. I don't want to have to rely on the various Linux distributions to get around compiling Nmap and then putting it in the distribution. Uh, in fact, I can show you which version comes with a fully updated Ubuntu 20.04 system. It's not 7.9, uh, 7.92. Uh, I think it's 7.80 uh, that it comes with. So you're several versions behind on the engine. I haven't done any scientific testing it feels faster when i run the latest version of nmap i don't know if that's uh just you know a, a weird brain artifact that is telling me that you know my brain's telling me it's faster because i i think it should be faster um so i wanted to create a small container that basically when i ran nmap on my system it could always be the latest version without a whole bunch of trouble without me just like compiling it by you know downloading the source compiling it by hand and then uh, putting it in the path and making sure that was in my path. I wanted something easier. I also wanted a container that was pulling down the latest vulner scripts as well. So I created a Docker file. Now in this one, I used Ubuntu 20.04 and I, I will say you can poke fun at me if you want, but I want one Linux distribution. It may not be the best Linux distribution in your mind. It may not be the fanciest, whatever we could talk about the differences in Linux distributions till the cows came home. My point was I wanted to settle on one. And since I'm running Ubuntu 2004 
on all of my systems. <clears throat> and then I started running it on all my servers. I said, you know what? I'm just going to standardize on Ubuntu because I know where the bodies are buried, right? I know where all the little quirks are. If I commit something to memory, such as how to you know configure a static IP address or modify the host name or whatever, if that's different in a different Linux distribution, I'm really just slowing myself down, accomplishing the same task just in a different way because that Linux distribute, other Linux distribution decided to do it a different way. So I've settled on Ubuntu 20.04, and I think their container builds are really good. So I start uh, in this line right here where it says from Ubuntu 20.04. I start with that as my base image. I tell it to build Nmap version 7.92 in one of my arguments there. And then I install all of the uh, packages and system dependencies. Now, I didn't just magically create this list. I had to build a VM uh, and I had to compile Nmap and I had to install all of the dependencies in the VM and take notes as I did that so that I could automate this in a container build. So these are what's needed. I always update CA certificates as well when I do. So I install the CA certificates uh, package from Ubuntu, and then I make sure that I update them, making sure I have the latest certificate chain. Otherwise, if you use curl to pull down something from a site that's using SSL, you might get errors. Uh, thank you, John Kinsella, for that tip. Help me with that. Um, then you're going to, in one gigantic command, you're going to download, compile, and install Nmap and download and install the Volner's uh, NSE scripts from their site. So uh, actually, did I? Yeah, I curl, I download uh, the, the version of Nmap that you specified in the variable. Uh, then you unpack it. Then you build it. And I built it specifically. Uh, I spent some time going through the configuration options. I really just wanted Nmap. I wanted a small, fast, light container with just Nmap. I don't want Zenmap, Nmap update. I don't need because I'm doing it in a container. Ndiff, Nping, and Ncat. Like, I don't want to build all those. Just so I say without those, and it won't build all those. And I had to do some gymnastics to get all the paths correct and things like that. Um, then make, make install, and then clone the Volner scripts, which are just NSE scripts that enumerate vulnerabilities. Then, of course, my entry point is Nmap. So when I run the container, uh, it'll run Nmap. So then you build the container, Docker build. Uh, T is tag, I believe. So you call it, uh, name the container Nmap uh, in the current directory. Once that's done building, it takes, I mean, your mileage is going to vary depending on how fast your system is. You know, it can take <coughs> a few minutes to build. It's not that bad because uh, I'm not building all the other utilities that come with Nmap. Then you run it with this Docker command right here, which is a really long command to type. And I'll, I'll show you how to get around that. So you're going to Docker run it. Um, you're going to remove the container when it's done. Um, you're going to run it in interactive mode with a TTY. I believe is what the T does to, to Docker. Uh, listeners, correct me if I'm wrong going off of memory there. Uh, and then you're going to run your uh, Nmap is the name of the container. But since my entry point is Nmap, it, it's the same thing as running Nmap as I just put my options right after it. And so I run it against the host and uh, I see the results here. So you can see it runs Nmap with lowercase s capital V, which tries to determine what service is service fingerprinting essentially 
It determines what service is running on that particular port. It determined it was this particular service. And it was running. And, and here's where the false positives come in. And I have more information on this in the upcoming webcast. I believe it looks at open SSH 7.9 P1. And says, well, OpenSSH 7.9 P1 is vulnerable. But if you look after this, it's actually Raspberry Pi. Uh, there's this extra information, uh, Deb 10 U2. Uh, yeah. you know, that can be indicative that the distribution, Ubuntu, Debian, Raspbian, whatever, has backported the security fixes into OpenSSH 7.9 P1 and given it their own version designation. And what will happen with not so advanced vulnerability scanners is it'll say, hey, uh, OpenBSD, OpenSSH 7.9 P1 is uh, vulnerable to CVE 2001-0554, which obviously th this is a fully patched uh, Raspberry Pi and is not vulnerable to a CVE from 2001. So in that sense, it's a little disappointing, uh, but hey, it's free. Oof. Right? Finds lots That's of vulnerabilities lot there. Yeah. yeah. And it also tells me that my bind server is out of date, which it's not. Again, but for the same reason, right? Uh, so 10U5, I suspect it's pretty damn current. Yes, yes. Uh, so also, uh, you can save the results to a directory. You basically map a local volume. Um, so your present working directory slash results gets mapped to a directory called forward slash results inside the container. Oh, now, I, did, I didn't make a note of what uppercase Z means. It's something to do with the volume permissions in Docker. And I can't remember off the top of my head exactly what that is. But you can probably look that up. It doesn't. Uh, I don't believe it worked very well without that. It'll actually create the directory in your present working directory called results, so that doesn't need to exist. Uh, and I can't. Re I should know what the capital Z meant, and I forgot. I'm sorry. Uh, so then I run the command again, except I do lowercase o capital A, which tells me to output all of the output formats in Nmap. So Nmap format, greppable format, and XML format. Uh, into forward slash results. So when I run that, I actually get the results in my present working directory uh, forward slash results. And I can review the results there. So basically running Nmap in a container, saving those results to a shared volume. The correct terminology is a shared local volume. Shared local volume. Yes. Um, so now what I want to do is I want to create an alias that runs the containerized version of Nmap rather than the version of Nmap that's included in Ubuntu 20.04. So you can see if I just run Nmap from the command line with dash dash version, it tells me, hey, you're running Nmap version 7.80. I'm like, wow, that's kind of old. I really want to run the latest version of Nmap. So I run the alias command. And I alias the nmap command with the command docker run dash dash rm dash v. In this instance, due to the way the alias command works and the bash shell works, I had to do dollar sign, open parenthesis, pwd, close parenthesis, which runs the pwd command and inserts the results of the pwd command into this command when you run it. 
So I do the alias, and once I alias it, um, which has been a feature in Unix systems for like a, a really, really long time, probably since Lee and, and Jeff remember. And when I run Nmap again, I get the latest version, 7.92, which is awesome. So now I can run cool. Nmap on my system, uh, and it, it'll just run, provided I keep this container image uh, called Nmap on my system, it will run that and use the latest version of Nmap, which saves me the trouble of having to compile it every time. But what happens if Fyodor releases a new version of Nmap? You might be asking. And if you are, I'll give you the answer to that. So all you need to do is refresh it. So to do that, you remove the image called Nmap with Docker space RMI Nmap colon latest. We'll remove the Docker image called Nmap or the associated Docker image. And then you just need to rebuild it. <clears throat> Docker build dash T Nmap and then the location of your Docker file uh, that I provided to you in this technical segment. We'll go ahead and rebuild it and rebuild you a fresh and clean and updated Nmap Docker container, which also has the vulner uh, scripts that are also updated in that as well. So you could run this whenever you want to do an Nmap scan with vulners, and not only would you get the latest version of Nmap, you'd also get all the latest NSE scripts in XML format, uh, or whatever format you're outputting. You're not going to get pretty HTML unless you, <coughs> you use Flanscan. So this was all in uh, conjunction with the work being done uh, for our lab's review of vulnerability management, vulnerability scanners, uh, which is uh, being published uh, very, very soon. So some of the things that we tested. Questions? Awesome. Comments? So can you show us like what some of the output looks like? Mm. I did on the other one. I have, um, if you can cut away from my screen for a moment. I do have, I have output somewhere. It sorts, um, hold on, I mean, probably best if I just show you a slide. It sorts it by vulnerability by host, right? So it says SSH vulnerability, blah, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not logged in. Uh, I don't, I don't have, do I have results handy? Nope. Oh, wait, I might, hold on. Didn't mean to trip you up, I'm sorry. Hold on. I, I might have Flan on here. Hold on. Let me see if I do. I might have some results on here. Everyone's going to see my vulner my vulnerability results are going to be hanging out on the internet now. <laughs> <clears throat> Oops. Oops. Uh, let's see if this command works. All right, yeah, you can come back to my screen. Yay. So these are what the results Ooh, look like. Great. It's good. It's a good question, Jeff, actually. Yeah. So you can see this is uh, a scan from a while ago that I just pulled up, and it says hmm. OpenSSH 7.5, and it lists all of the vulnerabilities with that particular service, and then it lists the hosts that are associate so the above 42 vulnerabilities apply to this network location mm. which they might it might need i mean at that time i needed to update my firewall uh or not again because it's just doing the pattern matching you know back to that uh explanation so that's what the results look like they're not bad pretty nice html format 
Uh, I think when you click on these, what happens? Nothing, apparently. Hey, a question on the Discord, yeah. and I can't answer it. Did you mention where you're getting all the vulnerability lists? Yes. I'm getting those from mm-hmm, the uh, and this command right here. When you clone that GitHub repository, that is the vulnerability scripts which contain the uh, all the vulnerability checks, and you're just copying them into OpShare and Map scripts vulners. Cool. And then I'm actually updating all the other scripts for Nmap as well. Updating the database of NSC scripts. And there's a whole bunch of NSC scripts do all kinds of stuff. Some of which actually will discover vulnerabilities outside of vulners, right? Um, but that GitHub mm-hmm. repo, repo is what holds all those vulnerability checks. I like it for small, quick, fast scans. Maybe I'm on a pen test. Maybe I've just stood up a system or two and I just want to scan them quick, see what it's running, see if there might be any vulnerabilities associated with it. That ten, tends to be how I use it, um, which is why I like having that container that I can just build and always get the latest updates. Right. So I'm assuming that Nmap is still more or less a free product. Nmap is uh, free and open source. Correct. Mm-hmm. The Volner so, scripts are open source, but Volner's also has a suite of commercial products as well that let you at least scan Linux systems. I don't think they let you apply patches, but they have like a vulnerability management system for Linux systems, I believe, which I did not test. I looked I looked into it, but I didn't test it or write it up or anything. So uh for the for the small poorly funded you know organization company that doesn't really have much security yep they uh, should use open maturity <laughs> <laughs> yes which means they probably don't have a lot of technical uh skills no i, I wanted to run a correction on the open vast so mm-hmm. you can download a pre-configured virtual machine that runs the free and open source version of open in addition to get my terminology right, the Greenbone community feed, which is a free feed of plugins. It is not the same feed. It's missing some plugins and other features that it documents. They document on Greenbone's website. I believe it is called the Greenbone professional. I want to say professional feed, but I don't think it is. I think that's what I'm thinking of Nessus. There is a Greenbone commercial feed, which that actually may be what it's called, that Mm -hmm. you can get a 14-day trial of if you register. Last week, I or week before, whatever, I said that you had to register for the VM. It's not the case. I talked to the folks at Greenbone, who are very, very nice, by the way. Uh, and, and I told them I'd run the correction. Um, so you can register and get the Greenbone commercial feed, I think is what they call it, with all the like enterprise checks and you know all that kind of stuff. Although I did find vulnerabilities in some of my Cisco devices. Uh, in the open feed, which is I was using. So, Jeff, to answer your question more succinctly, mm-hmm. if you're a small shop, you're looking for a vulnerability scanner, I'd go download one of the VMs from OpenVAS, and I'd start with just the the community feed and do some scanning. It's actually got some really... I'll talk about, I talk about it in my review that's going to be published, and I'll talk more about it in the upcoming webcast, but like I like the features in it. You can schedule scans. You can recast risk. I'll show you how to do that. Um, mm-hmm. you can, uh, see reports of all the vulnerabilities, export the reports. Like it's, it's really nice. I like it. Oh, 
it looks it looks like what we got though is if you want to use nmap with the volner's uh uh, vulnerability scan and actually have output you can really read. You use Flan to, re Flan to reformat it. Correct. Um, it's maybe not the most sophisticated scanner because of false positive, but it at least takes it, make it more, much more readable than it was before. Yeah. Like I sh probably should now port this into like my cloud environment where I'm running some services. Mm. And there's not that, there shouldn't be that many listening ports on my cloud, you know, services no. and many of my EC2 instances, which I think is how, if I remember reading correctly from uh, Cloudflare, which is how they run it, right? You stand up a bunch of servers in the in the cloud, they're internet facing, you've hardened them, they're, they're running in AWS, for example. There shouldn't be that many running services on those systems and or containers. And so like that's where I would run, you know, Nmap every single day and and have it output a report to an S3 share that I check. At least that's how I do it. Running it on your internal network when you've got IoT devices and all that other stuff, I would mm -hmm. use uh Jeff back to your question for smaller shops, I'd use Rumble mm -hmm. to discover okay. everything that's on my network and I would use OpenVest to scan it for for vulnerabilities and work off of that. <laughs> And Rumble has a free license that is limited by number of IP addresses. I forget I forget how, how many it's limited to, but you can create a free Rumble account. That's HG Moore's company. They do the best job. Okay. I mean, we've, we've well, obviously that's what we do is we test stuff. And Rumble accurately identifies devices like no other. It is the benchmark standard for that, in our opinion. Cool. Thank you. I just had this vision of you automating your as you're building containers and deploy them as part of that you'll you'd execute the uh vulner scan against the new the new container before you pushed it live but that might not be the best answer but it sounded like it could be cool yeah yeah i think that's how they're using it because you know it's small fast light and i can just constantly run it against my my build environment my production environment and and grab those results and just see like Hey, wait, there's a new service here. Should that be there or not? And is it vulnerable? So you're not going to DOS yourself. Right. Are you going to wind up incurring costs in the cloud for extra cycles to respond to the or is it going to be negligible? No, it should be pretty negligible in my in my opinion. It, I, it, it does not take up many. I mean, I used it for internal scanning. And, I mean, it takes some time, but not. I didn't actually look at the. We try not to get hung up on like performance benchmarking when we're doing these labs tests, right? It's more about how is the user experience, right? So like if a scan takes a really long time, we might make a note, but we're not looking at doing performance benchmark testing like you would see for CPUs and applications and things like that. I think it's uh -huh. a different kind of testing. I was thinking you were focusing on the user experience and the usability and, and accuracy more than anything else yeah like how and why you would use it more so than does this scanner run faster than the other one right right um, yeah so yeah it, it's uh it's been a lot of fun uh again i do have a webcast with the webcast will in also include a open source project called vols.io v-u-l-s.io uh, which is a credentialed, credentialed only vulnerability scanner for Linux or BSD-based systems. So it logs in, gets a list of all the packages and running versions, and then double checks that and cross-references it with ExploitDB, 
the NVD and, and a whole bunch of other ones. So that will be covered in the in the webcast. I'll show you how to set that up. Some of the more challenging things are if you're just looking to set something up quick or your Linux skills vary or your Linux skills vary in a particular area, like maybe you've never run a project that uses Golang or something like that. The good news is, uh, not Larry, not Larry probably too, but Adrian, I've spent a lot of time getting a lot of the open source stuff working <laughs> and so we can save you a lot of headache. So I've got examples of that in the in the webinar. I've been trying to share that in the technical segments as well because getting these things running is it's kind of, it can be kind of tedious uh, if that's not like your your sole one of your primary functions in life, which for labs it happens to be for us. I was looking at your at your uh, run script you created. I remember in some cases you've talked about changing the default versus letting things you know changing it to some directory under op versus letting it just throw it where it wants to. Yeah. When do you go which way? It's interesting. I mean, because this is in a container, I mean, I probably could have uh, put it wherever the defaults were because it is in a mm -hmm. container. I think that was a carryover probably from my previous notes where I was building Nmap on my local system and I didn't want it to get confused or step on anything else on my system. And so I put it in slash opt, right? Right. I mean, you, you can so have control over all that stuff. Nmap, I think, actually gives you control over all that stuff. I, I I like the idea of just you know to be keep from stepping on whatever might be built in, putting it in a different place. Uh, that's that's you know, I, but then you have to remember to call it out of the different place, or you're going to get confused. Right, and then also like if I if I happen to install the same package from the distribution, I'm not stepping on what I built either. Right. Right. If I accidentally, like, if I forget that I built it, or if you manage multiple Linux systems and you enter the wrong command into the wrong system, which can be really, really bad, <laughs> but we've all done it <laughs> at least once. Um, why is the primary? Why is the primary mail server for the university rebooting, Paul? I don't know. I was just rebooting that other. Oh wait, I was in the wrong SSH window. Sorry about that. Mail should be Oops. back in a couple minutes. <laughs> Been there. True story. <laughs> Only about 18,000 18, people without mail. You know, oops. Live and learn. <laughs> but yeah, so if I do that, like on, you know, uh, and oftentimes I'm like on my laptop SSH into one of my desktops and I'm trying to do stuff and I'm like apt install Nmap, it won't step on the version that I built. So. Hmm. Or it gets installed as a dependency for something else more more likely than me making, well, maybe not more likely than me making a mistake, but also another use case. All righty. Yeah. Any, other, any other questions? Um, I'm good. Very yeah. impressed, Paul. Well, very impressed. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was fun. It was one of those things like, oh, I've been meaning to do this for a long time to make things easier on myself. And and finally, I just, I had the opportunity to do it as part of another project. This is usually how things get done, right? Yep. Awesome. Well, with that, we will take a short break. Come back with the security news for this week. Stick around. 
keeping up with security issues across thousands of web assets without the right approach to web application security is a daunting task. Get ahead with web vulnerability scanning automation from NetSparker, a leader in dynamic and interactive application security testing known for its ease of use and accurate results. Detect a wide range of vulnerabilities in all legacy and modern web applications, address security bugs at scale by automating the confirmation process, automatically prioritize vulnerabilities, and assign actionable tickets to the right developers in their native workflows for rapid remediation. For more information on how to scale application security with ease, visit securityweekly.com forward slash NetSparker. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. InfoSec World 2021 is proud to announce its keynote lineup for this year's in-person event. Here from Robert Hershevik, plus heads of security at the NFL, TikTok, U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Stanford University, and more. Security Weekly listeners save 20% on a World Pass and main conference registration by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash ISW2021. If you missed any of our previously recorded webcasts or technical trainings, they are available for your viewing pleasure at securityweekly.com forward slash on demand, working on getting our next webcast up from our sponsor, Keeper Security, uh, whom I was very impressed with. Uh, very, very, did an interview on uh, ESW and I've uh, spoken with them a few times and I'm impressed uh, with, with what they built. It's really solid solution for password management and password vaulting. So make sure you check out that webinar when we announce it. Now on to the security news where Leon, looking at some of your stories, uh, I thought we had one in common, but it turns out that insider threat is like the thing of the week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so your I thought story we had one in these common stories too. were a little depressing, if you ask. Yeah, me. like a fu- your headline read: "A fired New York credit union employee nuked 21 gig of data in revenge." And I have to yeah. say, for people contemplating doing this. We read these headlines all the time, and if you're uh, an exiting employee and you destroy something, usually you're tried and convicted. Like, it just saying, 16-year history here at Security Weekly, if we're talking about it in the news, you likely have been tried and convicted. It's usually, I'm not saying all the times, and I'm not a lawyer, but a slam dunk case because you've caused damage, <laughs> and they got the yeah. logs to prove it, and all fingers are pointing to you because you just left. And guess what? People probably know you left really pissed off. So it's not a it's not a good good move. So the other reason I posted that story was the fact that it took 40 minutes. I mean, we've all got, I hope, all got exiting employee strategy for how soon we're going to disable our accounts. Right. But I don't think that we've got the interval universally short enough. I mean, I've heard people talk about disabling it at 24 hours or whatever. I'm thinking, no, it's got to be as the door's shutting on their right. backside or, right. or sooner. Even and sooner, yeah. I mean, you yeah. just need to alias RM with LS or something. <laughs> yeah, just, <laughs> yeah, something so they can't do any more harm. And I just, like I said, that was what jumped out at me was the 40 minutes. And I'm like, damn. Well, um, if you're not uh, federating the identities, killing someone's yeah. access is a huge pain in the ass. We've yeah. probably most of us have at least been part of a process where you have to remove access for someone. It's, well, it's not just not like access. You just turn it's, off what their do you VPN do? Account anymore. What do you do with all their in-mail that's still going to be coming? You know, their email yep. that's still gonna be coming in. What do you do with their files? What do you do with their records? Work products. It's a complicated issue. 
I know in Google Drive or, or Google G, G Suite, I should say, uh, when that happens, which is an argument for federated identity, uh, when yeah. you, <laughs> excuse me, revoke someone's access, it kind of walks you through like, what do you want to do with their files? <clears throat> and it assigns a new owner to their files. But I right. don't mm -hmm. think it automates where their email goes, Jeff. I've had to do that manually. I have to go in and create yeah, an usually, alias. Usually that's somebody taking it over. Yeah. Uh, pop quiz for you, Paul or Lee. Uh, what do you think the uh, the interlude for termination to revoking access rights for terminated users is in the PCI data security standard? Take a wild guess. 48 hours? Okay, 48 hours. Well, Lee, no. you have a guess? One hour? I'm thinking it's one or two hours. It's a short interval. It's 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 a very uh, granular requirement, and the term that they use is immediately. <laughs> oh, so hello, subjectivity. Immediately, yeah. I mean, I mean, but that there's really not a lot of subjectiveness in that. Like, it doesn't no, say not. like as soon as you can. It says nope. no, like now. <laughs> right. Um, and most of the companies that I've worked with over the years, you know, they they have very coordinated dances between, uh, you know, managers and HR department. And usually, HR department is the one that has sort of the the dance card or the script of all the things that have to be followed, all the ducks that have to be yeah. in a row. Especially if it's going to be a, an involuntary separation, right? As they like to call it. And and it's yeah, and, and I mean. <laughs> escorted uh, out of the building right i, remember, I was escorted out yeah i was too I, and i remember being kind of butthurt about that right but now when i think about it i'm like if i went from my keyboard and started typing i don't think the person would have tackled me but i think that if someone's standing there in your office with you like they take you out of your office and they tell you like look we're gonna let you go now and they walk you back. I got walked back to my office and they were like, I'll help you pack up. And I really think that was just really to deter me from because someone's not that they were going to tackle me if I did, but like if I, I wouldn't do anything because there was someone standing there right with me and they were actually now looking back on it, they were kind of nice. Like, Hey, I'll help you pack up your stuff and, you know, and, and, and leave. I think they were right. more worried about at that time in the dot com bubble, uh, getting employees was even harder than it is now. They're worried about stealing employees and, and things like that. So, yeah, yeah the one time so, I got walked out, my, you know, I think I'd gone to lunch, came back and, and tried to log back in or unlock my screen and my access had been right revoked. And I'm like, and I was there as a contractor. So I'm like, well, that's weird. And, you know, if I've been here 30 days, 60 days, you know, is there's been some sort of, you know, expiration, 90 days is the case may be yep. for PCI. So I was like asking people, you know, people that I was working for my points of contact and we were running around for about a half an hour before somebody showed up and said, oh, please come with us. And, you know, so they actually revoked my access rights an hour before they walked me out the building. Right. <clears throat> I will um, tell more of that story someday, not on the air. Not on the air. <laughs> a Florida woman was, this is where I love, usually hear the headline is Florida man. It's Florida woman convicted of damaging her former employee's computers after she was fired. And this, this is what I think gets the insider doing damages they leave or when they're leaving <clears throat> kind of thing yeah. is they can really pin the damages, right? The, the company says it had invested two years and over $100,000 to build an application to store um, 
like resumes and applications for employment since she destroyed that system on her way out um it was easy for them to prove damages that's why i'm like kind of cautioning people like if you're gonna get pissed off on the way out you're probably going to be or you're going to be tried and you're most likely going to be convicted because proving damages is really i think a lot more usually straightforward in these cases from from what i've observed um so this was uh in hr she worked in the hr department and just before being escorted from the building um she was observed by two employees that's the other thing too is like there's other people in the office i guess if you're working from home maybe not um but they should she said the other employees observed she didn't say but the report said um employees repeatedly saw her repeatedly hitting the delete key on her desktop computer uh then she logged into a, another system that was the application of uh, the receiving applications for employment and uh deleted stuff there deleting over seventeen thousand job applications and resumes and leaving messages with profanities inside the system which just gives the prosecutors <laughs> more evidence to present in court that does not look good for you yeah. no <laughs> but the lesson yeah. learned is have a process follow it and, yes. and the key word is immediately revoke access especially for yeah. involuntary separation and change any shared passwords right that's a good time to go through and do some password changing of other systems that might fall out of your identity provider if you have one pop quiz number two paul pci does pci allow shared passwords no i would say no very good not at all right yeah <laughs> not at all generally a bad bad practice right very bad practice and yes. yet people still do it almost as much as they pick weak easily guessable passwords well, and I mean, the two cases that, that Lee and I just pointed out are two resounding reasons not to share accounts <laughs> and the credentials, right? Yeah. Right. right. Um, the, uh, you know, back before we were really widely using, you know, say a Microsoft managed service account, there's often were a shared account that were for application purposes uh, that had specific usage, but they were a shared account. And the trick is to make sure you're very clear on why you're doing it and what it, and the permissions are limited if you have to. Um, <clears throat> but you know, it's interesting. Local administrator accounts we've seen historically, if you're not using LAPS, would be the same password for every system. And that essentially is a shared account as we're talking about, but an interesting instance of that. Also, networking gear like Cisco devices if you're not using TACAX, is is TACAX still what people use? I wrote a paper on that a, a while ago. Yes. yes. Well, yes. TACAX Plus. TACAX Plus, right? Yeah. But your, your Cisco devices, right, would have the enable password and uh, in, in enable secret uh, that conceivably could be the same for much of your switching gear too. Those are the ones that I like to change when, when people leave. But, of course, there's better facilities for that today if the organization has chosen to implement laps or tacx plus to, to remove some of those more static passwords that would typically be shared there was a time when i worked for a vulnerability management company that i suggested that we allow people to put in a lit a short list of passwords that are like these are the ones that are legacy and they sh we've changed them we think across the board but we should go check all of our systems and make sure that in every single instance that we can 
find, discover, and or know about that these enable secrets, these local administrator you worked, passwords. You worked for a vulnerability management and a vulnerability scanning company? They did both, right? We had Nessus and Security Center. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's okay. not, not a secret where we work, Jeff. So it's not. I was being facetious, yeah. Yeah, me. I well, I wasn't, but it's okay. And to think we sometimes struggle to change default passwords, which is <laughs> that's like a shared password with everyone. <laughs> yeah, it's a password well, shared with the internet. Yeah. Well, you know, remember, I remember back when trying to install products and get it all to work and the integration. If you went and tried to change the default passwords they had in it, it would just not work because they were Agreed embedded in, in places. Yeah. And that's mm. not as much as true as it used to be. But I remember being painful, so it's I, I still am hesitant to change it. I know it's the right thing to do, right? But I'm always thinking, what am I going to break? Which isn't really an excuse, but it's what goes through my head. Yeah, I don't want to um, lock myself out of a system. That's the thing with credentials, and I think why it's the uh, the, the reason the, in the fear and uncertainty of it is that you're going to lock yourself out of that system. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the operational risk, I think in our brains, we're not necessarily going through this risk equation, but if we were to break it down, it's the operational risk outweighs the security risk in your mind. You're not thinking about that. You're just like, I don't want to get locked out of the system, which means the operational risk of me getting locked out is worse than the security risk in my mind, which I mean, I, I don't know. It, it's going to vary depending on the situation, but the, that could be an equal risk or maybe not. But in our minds, we're like, yeah, no, I can't, I can't, I can't change it. Well, yeah. try try convincing uh, you know IT Unix Linux or Windows admins that they really shouldn't be doing anything with the root or the you know domain admin password at all. It should be you know the password should be written down you know sealed in an envelope and locked in a safe and mm -hmm. and do everything with you know store procedures uh you know sudo run as uh you know but nobody should be nobody should be doing anything as admin especially logging on as admin in the morning and spending the first two hours you know surfing the web and logging into all their uh what we used to call social media but now we call news news feed. Uh, it's hard to convince people to 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 break the habit of doing, you know, and, and I get it. You know, I, you know there's you, some you to say on, on, on Linux systems that it is more of an exposure to, especially when the sudo bug came out, which we mm -hmm. should segue into next, right? Right. That we should not have sudo on Linux systems. That there should be regular users and there should be root. And when you need to do things as root, you need to enter the root password and become root to do that. Not rely on more code and configuration of sudo to be the the manager and gatekeeper of who has access to what and allow that escalation of privilege. I think on an individual workstation that's how I would almost deal with it, right? Like why if I'm on my workstation and it's running Linux, mm -hmm. do I need sudo or do I just need to remember two passwords? Like I got my password and I got the root password. I want to do stuff as root. I just become root. I get sudo out of the mix cuz it's less attack surface. Where that comes into play in the enterprise or even in you know small medium organization is when you've got tens or tens of thousands of Linux systems and you have to manage your identity. You, you then you'd have to remember the root password for all of your Linux systems, and conceivably it should be different for each system. Mm. Which well, again no, in the Microsoft because, world they call that you laps. Have, 
you have the groups or the trust relationships built into the pseudo or pseudo yeah. conf file, which you were raising a good point, you know, properly configuring sudo because you know i've been in organizations where they're they were at least doing su right of course they usually had the trust relationship built in so nobody had to be typing in the shared password which happened to be the root password mm. um the the worst thing i ever saw though and unfortunately i still see that is uh you know people understand that they're supposed to be doing sudo so they sudo to su correct and, and they think they're uh, doing something correctly, and, and that's all. I've I've pretty much given up on and on trying to win that argument, and I just try to help them to configure. Like, well, let's remove trust. Let's let's cut it down to a, as few admins as possible. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's and what let's you do. Make sure it's you know. Let's make sure you got the. I mean, because the goal from from the PCI perspective, in, in good part, is to make sure that you've got traceability when you know if and when something goes wrong or if you're fine trying to do something yeah. forensically you can you can find out at least what account it was which right. is one of the reasons why they don't like shared accounts or shared passwords uh, because you know there's plausible deniability well there's 37 people that know the the root password could be any yeah. of us and and that's problematic so there's there's a couple of there's a couple of things i've worked on to kind of address some of that when it comes to the sh the shared reusable password, doing a lot of cloud assessments, they provide when you sign up for a cloud service, they provide you an admin account from which everything is created, and that has a reusable password, and you can't always set that to a multi-factor. So I've we've worked introduced the concept of a break glass account. They create other accounts that have the privileges they need. They never use that one, except if they got a break glass. And then on the IT side, where we may have need for a shared password, we have sometimes able to leverage a password account manager. That's not quite the right term. Privilege access manager, excuse yep. me. That uh, will change. You check out the root password, and it changes it after you're done. Yeah. Or you no, check, that, yeah. check out the shared. Yeah. Well, you were on. E we talked about this on ESW this week, right? That when you get into larger numbers of systems, you should have an identity management or privileged. Yeah, uh, not PAM is the subsystem on Linux, but the mm -hmm. the right. category is privileged access management that does exactly what Lee was saying. We were advocating for that. Uh, we covered beyond trust, and there's many others in that space that 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 do that. Yeah, most definitely understand what goes in a mayonnaise jars under the porch, right? Yeah, like yeah, and managing that stuff is not is not easy as well, which is typically why it's reserved for larger type enterprises. Um, I did want to talk about oh. sudo because HP sure. has warned that the sudo bug gave attackers root privileges to the Aruba platform. Uh, Aruba was a uh, privately held wireless uh, network company and they were acquired by uh, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. I think HP had become HPE at that point mm -hmm. when they had acquired Aruba. And so well, it, it was a divestiture, more or less. Right, right. Yes, yes. And you may recall, Security Weekly had me do some. some yeah, you work went to HP. HP Inc. Yeah. a couple of years ago. Right. Um, yep. So, the Aruba Airwave management platform runs Linux, apparently, and also apparently runs sudo, and also was vulnerable, and has issued patches for it. CVE twenty twenty one three one five six. 
which was of course discovered by Qualys. And what I'm questioning is like, are you just discovering this or disclosing it now? Like, which did you? When did you discover it? When did you disclose it? And like, did you have an S bomb? Did you? Did it take you that long to figure out you had pseudo vulnerable? Like, I, this this wasn't like this was big news <laughs> at the time. Mm-hmm. So. Those are questions for which we can only speculate, pontificate. So, I mean, their workaround should be already done. I mean, it's basically saying restrict access to the management interfaces for your for your for your Aruba. I'm thinking, yeah, shouldn't you you do that? Right, that's something you should just do. Whether it's a pseudo vulnerability or not, you should just do that. Yeah, because. You don't want somebody messing with your network. You don't want messing somebody messing with your ICS stuff. It's all got to be, or any of your OT. It's it's it, it's too risky because you don't know what vulnerabilities haven't been discovered yet. I believe <clears throat> if you were to gain access to, well, I'm not sure the management, the airwave management platform, what level of access that gives you to the backplane, because essentially the wireless network traffic is decrypted as it goes across the backplane, right? And gets routed like right. normal traffic on the ethernet frames on the, on the network. I would have ventured to guess, and I'm not sure if it like your, how separate the management plane is from the plane that actually is routing the traffic or if they're one and the same, but that would mean if I were an attacker, potentially that <clears throat> if I gained access to it, I could escalate to root and do whatever I want, including probably sniff traffic after it's been decrypted from the wireless network. Which is no different like from getting access to a, to a switch, right? An Ethernet switch, kind of the same thing, but still. Oh not, not a point in the network that you want attackers lurking in. No. Yeah. No. That's okay. I'll turn on remote management and let my buddy take care of the network, okay? Right. Yeah, and again, I just don't... I don't I, that bug was released and reported in January, and here we are in September. And like, I'm curious what when they discovered it. How long did it take them to discover it? I don't want to pick on HPE, but I don't know. Did they find it immediately and just decide to disclose it now, or it's weird? Yeah. Well, this the CVE is dated January, or did it just come out? Uh, so it says the pseudobug was reported in January. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was That's reading through time. this, I was reading through, I guess the HPE notice, uh, you know, that there's a link to in, yeah. in the article. Um, all right. So it's, da- it's, it's dated August 25th. It says it okay. is when they, they, at least th- when they did their release, I don't know if that's the date of the CVE. Right. Uh, but I can tell you because I'm scrolling down. Funny that August 17th is when it came out. Unfortunately, you know, you scroll down to the bottom to the fix and there's no fix. It's a workaround, which might be part of the delay. That's interesting. Yeah. And the work, what's the workaround? To minimize the likelihood of an attacker exploiting these vulnerabilities, Aruba recommends that the CLI and web-based management interfaces for Airwave be restricted to a dedicated Layer 2 segment slash VLAN and or controlled by firewall policies at Layer 3 and above. 
so they're like they're not issuing a firmware update to fix the sudo not bug, yet. which is not yet. I mean, it's pretty. That's, we we talk with Wheel about this, and I don't, I don't remember in the sudo vulnerability where we fell, but certainly instance of Sequoia. It, it, and I believe these were pretty similar in that, like applying the patch was not that all like impactful. Like you're not going to disrupt operations if you're patching sudo or you're patching the Sequoia bug. Like, I mean, the, obviously they're different bugs, but I think when we got to the point, like interviewing Wheel, who was on the team that discovered these vulnerabilities, like this is not a Windows patch that could disrupt, uh, you know, operations. Like I think if you're on the firmware of your wireless management controller that patching a local privilege escalation vulnerability in sudo probably not going to affect too much in 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 your i mean i don't know for sure but i can just kind of speculate that that's not going to be very impactful which is interesting well especially when they don't give details i mean but yeah. they're basically trying to tell you to control access uh permissions trust uh restrict access in ways other than doing anything with the device itself right without giving any details so it's assumed that you know what to do there yeah that's it's weak it's weak <laughs> it is that's a good way to describe it jeff it's it's weak i mean they should just patch it my opinion but it also implies that to me anyway it implies that there isn't a quick easy fix or or patch available um and, and i'm assuming that HPE has known about this since January. I, I, I would assume, that. right? I mean, and, but this is yeah. the danger when you've customized open source software from Linux or wherever uh, you get mm. your open source software from and you've customized it. You have to be responsible and monitor the open source projects and vulnerability disclosures. Whereas, you know, let, let's say... In a different scenario, you're using software from a commercial vendor, like VXWorks, for example. Like your vendor is going to contact you and say, "Hey, you're running some vulnerable stuff," or you're like, "You licensed a vulnerable component for us. Here's an update to it." In open source, it's like every person for themselves. Like you just got to figure out if you've built all these open source components together. It's up to you to figure out what what could be vulnerable and what's not, and then to go fix it. In other words, now, they're not running Ubuntu on their, on their you know, management plane. It's their own customized version of Linux, and therefore they're responsible. Well, and let me back up a little bit on what I was saying earlier because I'm, I'm clicking on more links. Mm. Dangerous. Uh, there, was a, there was a CV issued back in January, and I'm assuming that's for the sudo bug in general. That's correct. Which, which has impacted lots and lots and lots and lots of systems. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to, uh, try to conjecture what HPE has been doing for the last eight, eight or nine months. Right. Um, and why they chose now to put something out that right. doesn't really do, does nothing more than to acknowledge that there's a problem and you should be on the lookout for it. Um, I'd give them yeah. a little more leeway if eight months ago they said, yeah, we like, we looked and yes, we're vulnerable. And like, just make sure no one gains unauthorized access to your devices because that means they could exploit the bug and become root, which would be worse. And I get it. Like, that's the risk, just, you know, risk based kind of, I hate using that word like that, Jeff, because you're going to pick on me. The, uh, the decision that involves risk, right? <laughs> that you have to make. 
and, right. and this determined like yeah i mean someone that has access to this it's already bad the fact they have the pseudo bug makes it worse but like work to make sure an unauthorized attacker isn't uh, gaining unauthorized access to the management plane of your your which goes without saying right right uh it, it, i find it curious and somewhat humorous at the top of HPE's security bulletin they have a notice that states this information the information in this security bulletin should be acted upon as soon as possible yeah right <laughs> okay like, okay they should hold themselves to the same standard yeah uh, uh, again transparency thinking. is a big win with myself and I think many of us in the security community just be transparent about it tell us about it as yeah. soon as you, you knew about it right that but well, now I'm even more confused because they in in their notice, and I'm sorry I didn't read all this ahead of time because you know there was a lot to read. Yeah, there's a lot to read, and there's lots of it, it's a you know it's a rabbit hole. Rabbit yeah, trip. yeah. Um, they in their security bulletin also cite saying they have a note saying information originally published in Aruba dash PSA dash 2021-15, which is an Aruba product security advisor advisory, and I click on that. And in that uh, advisory, uh, there's a statement that says that this, uh, that as far as an overview, that Aruba has released updates to the Airwave management platform that address multiple security vulnerabilities. So maybe they have fixed something, mm -hmm. and and you know the you need to either update or. You need to limit access. So I, I'm a little bit confused in terms of there seems to be mixed messaging going on here. Agreed. I don't know who, other than maybe Security Weekly News, who who is the watchdog that kind of mm. tries to ride herd over all this type of uh, sometimes misleading and, and misdirected information. Mm. Well, what, go what goes through my mind with that kind of a... Uh, set of disclosures is an incomplete fix. Um, but like Paul said, full transparency is better. I mean, one of the stories I put in there, you know, the QNAP once again has a vulnerability in their NAS, and they haven't fixed it yet, but they're telling everybody, hey, we know about the vulnerability. We haven't fixed it yet. You should, you know, like, make sure your devices aren't publicly accessible right. until we can get fixed. And they're not the only one, by the way. It just came to the top of my mind. Yeah, I think if you know you're you're rolling a custom Linux OS or firmware, uh, you know, based system that it's your responsibility to tell your customers, even if you haven't fixed it, like, hey, it has this vulnerability that was disclosed. Like, just FYI, we're working on fixing it, but it's there. Otherwise, it's up to me as the customer to go in and go, well. There were some vulnerabilities that were disclosed in Linux-based stuff, and I know QNAP is. Maybe I don't know QNAP is Linux-based. Let me see if QNAP is Linux-based. Let me reverse engineer the firmware. Let me go see what versions of stuff that are running and determine if it's vulnerable. Like, no one's doing that. No one's doing that. That's why I think I, that's where SBOM, I think, is uh, yeah. really important in this in this particular scenario. I'm, ha I'm having a brain failure because I read something today, and I wish I could quote it or cite it, where the company said, we have no plans to fix this. Um that should cause a different sort of reaction on the customer side. Right. I'm, I'm not sure if anybody's uh, so comfortable that they can feel they won't lose customers with it. We're, we're not going to fix this. No, it's just a, another risk-based decision that somebody made. Yep. 
on your, more on of a, your more of a, more of a financial risk, perhaps. Well, here's another one. It's in uh, one of Paul's stories. They said they're not going to fix it. Oh, I was going to yeah. segue to that one. You read my mind, Lee. Let's yeah, do it. The, the We've been doing thirty podcasts together. That has a issue, yeah. <laughs> Go for it. So, a smart home security vendor had some vulnerabilities. What is that smart home security vendor? Fort a, it's it's a fort fort something. No, it what, doesn't. What is your story number? I saw seventeen. Seventeen. It's called Fortress. Fortress is yes. they claim a popular home security system. Uh, I'm not sure what you know would earn that moniker how many customers you need, but they say it's popular. And so they had some vulnerabilities that Rapid Seven discovered. And one of them, the one that I was uh, kind of focused in on this one, is that if a malicious actor knows your email address, they can query the API, which is cloud-based, that that API would then return the IMEI um, for that particular device, which also serves as that device's serial number. And with the known email, so with those two pieces of information, the user's email address and the IMEI, you can then query the API and disable the alarm system. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, and there was yeah. another vulnerability they disclosed on it uh, as well, which I didn't, I didn't write up because I was just, again, really focused on the one that vulnerability I just <laughs> described. Hold on, they uh, revealed details. Hold on, we're going to get to the details. Um, well, why are you looking for that? Uh, if I can provide oh, filler, RF, sorry, RF signal replay it. attack. Thank you. I uh, I find it uh, also find it c kind of humorous, and and here's an example of uh, how not to respond to vulnerability disclosures as a vendor. Yes. Uh, you know, Rapid Seven talked about. Uh, you know, they they contacted Fortress in May of twenty twenty one from them. Yep. They sent an email to the owner and they used a uh, email open tracker called TechCrunch. So well, that could, was well, TechCrunch uh, did that. So Rapid Seven and TechCrunch Tech both both tried to yeah. So TechCrunch is the one that sent them. And up. next, they heard from uh, Fortress's lawyer mm -hmm. <laughs> saying, "This is false, purposely misleading, and defamatory." Yes. So. Yeah, so Rapid7 disclosed this to the vendor on May 2021. Um, they got tickets created in May, and then on from May 24th, uh, the ticket was closed by Fortress. And then Rapid7 followed up on August 18th. Uh, they created a follow-up ticket with the vulnerability details uh, and the reiteration of their intent to publish within the 90-day window we're talking about what the window was for rapid seven rapid seven's right. policy is 90 days and then on august 31st they did the public disclosure and we, we talked about this last time with rapid seven and the, say, and the other yeah, thing that we went through in here it seems that they've got a string of just bad luck um that they've experienced with some of these vendors and i feel bad for rapid seven in this uh and i also feel bad for the vendors that they're not responding to Rapid Seven's request, I, I don't, I don't get it. Um, I think Rapid Seven had every right. They followed protocol. They opened up multiple tickets with the vendor. They were very clear about what the vulnerability was. If you read Rapid Seven's report about the vulnerability, it is absolutely, in my professional opinion, reproducible and absolutely a bug from what they've documented. And the Fortress is doing some hand waving, and now it's public. Yeah. Which just like I feel like we're we've taken 
20 years step back in behavior from vendors <laughs> and rapid seven just happened to hit on a couple of a couple of weird cases where disclosure well well there were the other ones with fortinet you know they've got they've got something with the fort something companies right fortinet right. sounds like more of a, we just established that as a miscommunication right. this in my opinion is just hand waving and outright negligence from from fortress i mean they basically said like no, there is their their legal team, right? Was the right. one that so TechCrunch then sent an email to the founder of Fortress with tracking enabled and saw through tracking that the email was opened, never got a response from the, the founder, but got a response from the legal team. And the legal team was like, claims the claims are false and purposely misleading and defamatory. Which is very legal right. legal response. Yep. I was actually chuckling because I, I was reading the the title of the the story 18 right under it yeah. does a usb drive get heavier as you store more more files on it actually dot 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 and i was thinking wouldn't it get lighter and then i opened it and lo and behold it gets lighter it gets lighter i don't know if we want to change gears right, on a lighter do. note <laughs> what so the the ones and zeros of your data are stored on transistors when you save data a binary zero is set by charging the float gate of the transistor and a binary one is set by removing the charge. So to charge it, we add electrons, and the mass of each electron is 0. 0.0000000, like a lot of zeros, 91 grams. Zeros. That means that an empty, what that means in English is that an empty USB drive, which holds mostly zeros, weighs more than a full USB drive, which has ones and zeros. Add and that, data. You know, I didn't understand the whole weight thing, but I was just thinking, right. wouldn't a one wouldn't be a one be? I was just thinking about one is it. heavier than a zero. I've weighed them, the numbers. It, it, yeah, there's definitely. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking one is less than a zero because you know it's there's it's just a line. It's not a circle line. Oh, but I, I was, see. It's the shape. I wasn't. Yeah. I wasn't getting really technical. <laughs> I was just thinking, just because of the shape, I was like, "Well, there's less to a one." And then I started, well, you know, and then I thought, "Well, there's, you know, the article, the gist of so, the article, they actually weigh it." So by that argument, one is lighter than a zero, but an eight is heavier than a zero because there's more, yeah, more segments in you. There's more right. to it, right? There's more to it. Yes. Okay. Yep. Well, and it would cool. depend on whether you're defining in computer terms a zero is you know an octal and or you know an eight bit byte and so it's really eight zeros or and what's an what's an eight and is that that's one zero 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 one zero zero is that an eight i think that's an eight there's still I one know. one instead of all zeros so technically an eight slider i was uh, today <laughs> years old when i learned that the mass of an electron is point zero 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 lots more zeros nine one grams. You know, if I severely overload my my USB drive, will it start to float? Because it gets so light. Well, Never no, because you can you can only you can only replace all the zeros with ones, and then, <laughs> but not really because it's a mixture. Because data is not, I, I guess. Well, if you wrote, can you can you write ones to every trans? I'm not sure. Anyway, it was a very science well, article. You, you, you'd have to like do it. I don't think there's a way to store data that's all ones. Also, it makes you speculate like what kind of scale are they using to weigh these things on? That must be a serious freaking scale. <laughs> uh, depending on where you work, it may not be that uncommon. Right. 
I mean, I'm sure the post Places office, like the post V-works. office scales that they like give out for free if you sign up for an account. Probably not going to do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. That's yeah. but certain government. It's your science article of the week. Destin agents. Yeah, it was kind of cool. I, I just right? kind of chuckled that I guessed it the right answer, if not for the right reason. Well, you had a 50-50 shot, <laughs> right? True. Uh, so, yeah, Lee. So I was wondering, you and I both hit the Cosmos DB story. You want to talk about that one? Yeah. Chaos DB, in other words? Chaos DB was what they called the, uh, the exploit, unauthorized privilege access to Microsoft Azure Cosmos DB. They exploited this one by a chain of vulnerabilities in Jupyter Notebooks, which then allowed for access to the backend database. Uh, I'm not super familiar with this particular technology. Uh, they did a pretty good job of um, describing it. They had pretty pictures and graphs and, and all that stuff. Uh, and I'm not sure if your Cosmos DB is shared by all their applications or if this is just, it looks like just the one that's created if you're creating a notebook public cloud that uses Jupyter Notebooks that in the back end uses a Cosmos DB. And through that, uh, you could gain on full admin access, read, write, and delete to another customer's Cosmos DB instance without authorization. Oh, so maybe if I'm using a Cosmos DB for something different since another customer is using it for Jupyter Notebooks, that you could extend that access if I'm using a Cosmos right. DB for something different. Yeah. Uh, Wiz is the, are the one folks, uh, their research team, are the ones that created it and did a very good job of documenting it. Right. I mean, Microsoft closed, closed the vulnerability like mid August. It was like August 14th, approximately. And, uh, the main thing they want you to do is, you know, change your, change your Cosmos DB keys in case, you know, your access is potentially compromised. And they also suggested protecting access to your Cosmos instant either through a their the VNet, which is the the uh, their virtual cloud network, yep. or some sort of firewall, which should make sense. I mean, only allow access to it from where it needs access. Um, so, but it was kind of cool that you know the Wiz team found it, Microsoft fixed it in like forty eight hours or something crazy, right? And uh, and and it's kind of a cool. That's the kind of response we need. Yeah, and, and I then, think but especially got a bug bounty too. But I also think that Microsoft and the like are going to fix these more quickly, especially when they're tenancy issues in yeah. the cloud, because they need they require that their users trust the cloud. Otherwise, they're not going to use all these cloud services. And so if they're lackadaisy about fixing stuff that relates to tenancy, people aren't going to trust the cloud and they're not going to buy stuff. So it hits their bottom line in a big way. Some of the other examples, maybe they don't believe it's going to hit their bottom line in a big way. Microsoft with cloud, certainly that would because it would erode the trust people have with the cloud. <clears throat> the, the cloud providers have been trying to build since its inception. Well, the truth of the matter is we know something is going to go wrong at some point. It's what happens that really matters. It's the response. Yeah, no one can build a perfect yeah. system in terms of security or even usability or reliability or performance <laughs> or whatever. It's your ability to fix those things and how quickly and efficiently you can do that uh, that really matters. Hey, Windows NT was a C2 certified secure system. 
You just couldn't yeah. plug it into a network. Right. Well, there's that. Just remember oh, that. And I mean, when I've early in the nineties, I was doing collaboration with, with some Russians and they had a previous model for code development that code would not be released until it was 100% defect free. And they were government funded, so they had basically an infinite pot of money to get there. But it meant it was really hard to get anything delivered. Right. Teaching them the idea of incremental delivery of, of applications was really painful. Um, and they didn't trust anything they didn't have the source code for, which is not a bad model, but it makes it very hard to use externally available products or other encryption or, or commercially available encryption. But We've come a long way. We got a lot more flaws, but we're getting a hell of a lot more stuff out the door now. And I think certain organizations are doing a better job of fixing stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The problem is absolutely. you got to know it's broken too. And uh, I just saw my story about the the NSO group. Um, yeah. Did you guys, did you listen to the Darknet Diaries most recent episode on NSO group? No. Jack haven't, did a haven't caught it yet. He did like a full deep dive into the NSO group uh, as a part two of his series that started with spies and involved Citizen Lab. Uh, and it's, it's like really cool spy story, very vividly talking about a kind of a spy craft incident at a, a restaurant somewhere. Like they went into a lot of details in that. It was pretty interesting. But then also kind of segueing off of that part two, you know, NSO group was involved in that kind of spy craft in part one uh, in this most recent episode, which is part two, looks at what NSO group does, how it operates, why it might they speculate why it might be interested in Citizen Lab. Uh, if you're not familiar with Citizen Lab, they do kind of uh, investigations into nefarious things that are happening uh, on the Internet. Uh, involving different uh, types of groups. Awesome. Uh, I'm not sure how they're funded, but really awesome research. You should go check it out. <clears throat> we cover them on the show sometimes as well. But in the Jack's episode where now Jack was not able to get anyone officially from NSO group that is a Israeli company that basically makes software so you can spy on people. Is this the one he was telling us about when we interviewed him and yes. he was trying to get people and I guess he failed and eventually gave up and just ran with what he had? He, I think he says in the episode, he tried for years. I think it's right. years to get someone from NSO group to talk. I think he, ta I think he mentioned that when yeah. we interviewed too. And yep. what he ended up relying on was any other interview that the NSO group did. And I want to say it was Forbes that went to Israel and went to headquarters and interviewed one of the founders of NSO. NSO stands for the initials, much like RSA of the, the people that founded it and very different missions in, in, in the two different companies, right? NSO is what makes Pegasus. Um, and so Jack pulled news clips that NSO had done interviews with to provide information and context to the interview, did a great job with that. Um, they talked about some of the very specific use cases where if you put all the pieces together, NSO group sells Pegasus to the Mexican government. Mexican government is reported as using it to gain information about cartels. In fact, they, they, they speculate with some degree of circumstantial evidence, I guess you would call it, that El Chapo was taken down when he was on the lam using the Pegasus software that was installed on his 
friends and family's kind of phones. Uh, and that's how they found him. Um, but Pegasus relies on, they talk about the the one-click exploit where you can send text messages to an iPhone and someone clicks on it and installs the uh, a WebKit vulnerability and then installs the spyware. And then, of course, there's the no-click vulnerability uh, that was reported as well. A lot of it's being used to spy on journalists and things of that nature. NSO group claims, and this is where this headline kind of caught me, that they do three different levels of evaluation so like they when they sell the software they claim that they do their own investigation they meet as a committee in nso and the uh, government office from israel also has to bless it that they're going to sell it to this country and in this case the israeli foreign minister is promising to take a look at nso I'm just going to speculate at this point that the Israeli government, everything that I've heard about NSO, especially from Jack's episodes, is likely benefiting, again, pure speculation, is likely benefiting from Pentecost's software. So when they do this investigation, I, I kind of envision it as like, you know, they're going to meet at a bar and, and have a couple beers and be like, I'm supposed to be investigating you right now, but, you know, thanks for letting us take down some of the Hamas and some of our other enemies using your software. And that concludes this investigation. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think, I think I, it's a fair, I think it's fair speculation, that, you know, if, if you follow this well, kind of stuff. You're sideloning again, Lee. Next up, Lee's got to get the, the, the PO <laughs> for some new gear. Yep. <laughs> Still doing it. I guess I should talk then. Yeah. Uh, can we move on to another story? Oh, I, yeah. I didn't, yeah. Lee. Oh, I didn't know if you have comments unless on that story. We, unless we get Lee back. I'm just not going to say much about it. Just given my background. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I I just I want to make sure you go listen to the episodes from Darknet Diaries. Did a great yeah, job. Yeah, definitely want to listen to it, especially yeah. since he was sort of talking about it on our, you know, when we interviewed him a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago. How long ago was right. it? Time is such a blur. Um, I'm trying to find what article number it was and whose article. Uh, oh, yeah. The article right. that it's time to create a TJ Hooper. TJ Hooper. Information security. Fascinating article. And I read <laughs> the whole thing before I actually looked at who wrote it. Because mm. I, because you know, in the middle of it, there's actually quite a decent section on PCI, which I found surprising. Oh yeah, and I got, and I got to the bottom. He's like, I wrote this article or published this article some years ago, and I'm like, well, that explains because the PCI section uh, sounded a little bit dated. Not that it was outdated, just the, the just sure. I don't know, the way it was written, it sounded like. How do you pronounce Ben's last name? Rothk. Roth Rothke. Rothke. Ben Rothke. And yeah, Thanks, when ben. I saw it was Ben, I so that yeah. explains why he was cogent, cogent uh, when he was talking about PCI. Mm. Uh, and and we actually interviewed him early on on Security and Compliance Weekly. I think it was episode thirteen. Oh, okay. He he's also part of what's what they refer to themselves as the PCI Dream Team. Uh, there's four different guys that are all 
well-respected, if not liked, people because they, you know, they kind of hold companies to task for what PCI really requires you to do. Things like immediately revoking, you know, access rights to terminated employees. Uh, We interviewed the the Dream Team uh, episode thirty-six. I was, I think it was on security and compliance. I I act like I'm making it up. I looked it up. I wrote it down. So I'm I'm faking that whole thing. (laughs) It's episode thirteen and thirty-six. But the article was interesting because it's you know it's talking about the the legal precedents of uh, trying to basically force companies to do more than the bare minimum of security, which is right. you, know, a, you know a very often <laughs> repeated topic and something I pull what's left of my hair out all the time as I'm working right. with these companies. Um, uh, in fact, I I, I want to run this article by uh, Priya sometime see see if she can kind of. Uh, dissect it for us and, and tell us a little bit more about the case because right. I'm there sure are many, that he's glossing um, over a lot of the concepts here. And Jeff, I, before we dig into the details, there's a lot of analogies. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure this is an analogy more than a parallel uh, to things outside of cybersecurity. Some mm-hmm. of these things hold up. Some of them don't. I thought right. Ben did a great job of describing a situation outside of cybersecurity that relates to cybersecurity and hit the nail on the head with this one. Because a lot of these analogies kind of like, eh, like someone talking about Kung Fu or hip hop. Like, eh. yeah, some of those. Some yeah. Of those, like, yeah. Really this one was, was well. really good. <laughs> and I had not heard of the case, but apparently I've not heard of the case either. Yeah. I don't know if you want to take a, yeah, a stab at sort of, uh, summarizing it sure i i you know i i, I like the case uh because it, i it, it was very well written so you could read it and understand and easily i think relate it to cybersecurity. so tj hooper um was the case of two tugboats they were towing the barges the barges sunk and the question mm-hmm. becomes like in a storm in a storm so who do you right. sue and who's at fault and those are two right. di- different, you know, kind of questions. I mean, the the short answer is everyone sues everyone, right? <laughs> like, right. Yeah, uh, is basically what. So the the owners of the cargo sued the barge owners, who in turn sued the tugboat owners. So everyone sued each other, right. and the judge basically claimed that the tugboat operators were negligent. I'm quoting from Ben because they failed mm-hmm. to equip their tugs with radios that would have warned them of the bad weather. Right, and then they go on to the. The more kind of nitty gritty legal uh, theory, and which is prevailing practice, is is the theory, uh, because there were no other tugboat uh, operators in the area uh, were using radios. This constituted a standard of care for the industry. Well, uh, and just to provide a little bit more context, just because I'm anal like that, um, you know. When large ships go, you know, go into small area areas, mm-hmm. harbors, or waterways that require sort of expert navigation, they very often use tugboats. That's very common yep. practice. And, and the tugboats, you know, they, I mean, basically the the captains of the the ships are in this case barges. You know, they let go of the controls, yeah. and the tugboats are literally steering the ships, which is why. You know, the liability was ultimately going back to the people that were in charge. And what was also interesting, th- this case happened apparently back in 1932, or the incident happened in 1932. I forget which one it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, a long time ago, almost 100 years ago, and while radios existed at that time, they were not yet 
and and some tugboat operators had them it was not to use one of our fun terms these days they were not ubiquitous right yet um but and if i'm summarizing correctly because I, I don't want to throw a lot of the legal terms although i'm fascinated to hear like priya uh explain this to us sometime um basically the the judge said well, just because not everybody had the radios already doesn't mean that common sense doesn't tell you that if you have something like that available to you, you should be using it. You could get weather reports and which could impact your business and ultimately whether things sink and whether cargo is lost, you should have it. So yeah. don't use the excuse that well not everybody's doing right. which it's is an interesting. a great great analogy. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting allergy. precedent like Yep. You were hacked or your ships, your cargo ships that you were towing sank because you didn't adopt the technology that could have prevented that from happening. Whoa. Right. How about that for a parallel in the cybersecurity? Yep. And I forget whether we were talking, I forget who I was talking about it with just in the last week or two. It might've been on air with you guys, but, you know, having so many customers over the years that, you know, their first question is, well, what is everybody else doing? You know, you go yeah. to all of our competitors what are they doing because we want to do just as much but no more because you know that's that was their it's probably tied to this at least one of these legal concepts or right. legal theories i'm sure they don't know that i'm sure they weren't familiar with this case when they say no that. not the case but the but the concept right of you know it, you know security best practice is doing what most people are doing or not doing and then you think you're good mm. uh yeah, which you know this thing crystallizes uh, very nicely so it's a great article and it actually has a decent nod to pci which i now understand because ben wrote yeah. it I, it's it, you know it wasn't the usual oh they don't really understand what pci is all about he actually does understand what pci is all about so he has actually something decent to say about it if you know not completely flattering he's talking about how pci failed to you know, like everything else has failed to be the silver bullet, the magic mm -hmm. fix. So, but interesting. He's also it. looking for that magic litigation that'll turn the turn the train here. Mm. What you know, what what could be in an infosec world be equivalent to the FAA shutdown of uh, Boeing's Max Eight? You know, how mm. can how are we going to get that wake up call to make significant changes? I'm not sure that it maps to uh, infosec the way. It does to physical, like like the tugboats or the airplanes. Um, it's too slippery. But I'd love to see something that could move the bar a lot. That would be nice if we could do it with a single big case. I'm just worried about reality. Well, I mean, historically, in my experience, but I think it's historically, you know, most of the companies uh that take security seriously you know the ones that we know about the ones that we encounter uh they didn't get there you know voluntarily and and you know being altruistic because they wanted to be good corporate you know global citizens it was because they were breached or in some cases because there's you know regulatory compliance that requires them to do it but most of the time it's because they suffered a pretty major breach. Cause I think he even brings up, uh, which was another thing, which, you know, not knowing who the author was, I was finding surprising cause he was citing TJ Maxx and Heartland and a couple other companies that were, 
you know, mm-hmm. breach back in, you know, sort of the first wave of major breaches back in the mid 2000s, where tens of millions of records and, and, and in several of these cases, you know, financial credit card type of records mm-hmm. were stolen. And the point he makes is, and these companies got away with it, essentially, largely unscathed in, in, in the grand scheme of things, paid very little in fines. You know, you, I could argue whether that is a true statement or not, depending, you know, depending on you were one of the people that got fired from TJX uh, as part of the the cleanup and after the math or Heartland or any of the other companies that they they mentioned. I bring up TJX and Heartland because I worked with those companies at the time and, and after the breaches. So I'm, I'm very familiar with what they went through, which is not necessarily public, but uh and I don't want to go into too many details, but you know, they, you know, each of those companies, you know, had to had to have settlements where they paid fairly significant fines, but you know, not fines that are putting these large companies out of business, um, mm-hmm. or you know, and and all these companies, especially even in the second wave in the in the early teens, you know, the the the. Um, uh, the Home Depot and, and Target and that that generation of major breaches. All these companies, like in the stock market and you know in the court of public opinion, you know they they took an immediate hit, but they all rebounded pretty well. You know, none of them are really suffering. Uh, and his point is, you know, maybe maybe there needs to be one of the points he made is maybe you know someday there needs to be an example set, uh, which. Is a, is a little bit of a, a sidebar. I don't know if any of you, either of you, had picked up on uh, Adrian, uh, got into a little bit of a debate on Twitter in the last couple of days with uh, some other gentleman, and I forget his name. Probably shouldn't mention it on the air, but they, uh, apparently Adrian tracks uh, companies that have actually gone out of business as a result of a, mm-hmm. a cybersecurity incident. And his, and I haven't read all of it and don't know all the background. Maybe we get Adrian sometime to talk about it. Um, but you know, his point is, you know, it, he's been tracking it for like 20, 25 years. And there's only been a couple dozen companies that he can find that have actually have gone out of business. And they're usually much smaller companies. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of sort of the negative reinforcement. Uh, I, I and I I think it's ironic that in our industry where we always are uh, concerned about the big brother and the intervention of government and they're you know they're uh, violating our privacy up up one side and down the other. When we get down to these serious conversations of what do we do to change things, pretty much everybody concludes we need to have the government step in and do something. Right. Not everybody, but I, I just, there's a certain uh, irony to that in my opinion. Yep. For sure. Uh, <clears throat> hackers claiming that Honda and Acura vehicles are vulnerable to a simple replay attack in the key fobs that control locking, unlocking, doors and if you uh, dig a little into this article go to the person's github page you can see a video demonstration where from some such device assuming some kind of software defined radio device he's able to start the car remotely without the key fob without the key fob without the key fob yeah that comes in handy in the winter right (laughs) my wife has a honda Yes, uh, it seems I'm to be just the, the. Surprised there's no rolling code, right? I mean, I thought rolling, rolling code was 
everybody. I thought that was more common than it is apparently. Hmm. Yeah. One thing's for certain: there's a lot of Hondas on the road. Yeah, this is true. No, Not sure how many of them had the remote start capability. That wasn't a common feature in in cars it, throughout I'm, history, I'm, right? I'm not, not throughout history, but it's 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 more common. Probably been around longer than we than yeah. we realize. It's certainly an option in more cars today than in the past. That is, if you can actually buy a new car today due to the chip shortage, but or much of anything, much of anything today. There's Graphics cards, forget about it. I, that's, right. That right. problem just seems to be getting worse more than it is getting better. Hey, um, again, sort of shifting gears, uh, I, I saw and you had the article that uh, our, our dear friend Ed Scotus has been promoted yes. to become the new president of SANS Technology Institute. Ed Scotus for president <laughs> of yes. the SANS Institute College, so I believe is the... Yeah, it says he was named president I, of the, the college. Board of the Directors announced the appointment uh, yesterday after a unanimous vote in support of the highly regarded and charismatic cybersecurity innovator. Very well put. Congrats, Ed. It's awesome. And he's got a really cool office. You should visit it sometime. Yes. yes. And and yeah. I, and I'm, I'm very... Uh, 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 torn up about this announcement because I think the world of Ed and, and and he deserves every accolade that anybody can throw on him because he's just that nice a guy and that's smart and just engaging and I can't go on saying enough great things about Ed. You know, he, he comes on every year and introduces the uh, holiday hack mm -hmm. challenge um, and he's welcome. I think I, I don't want to speak for him, but you know, he would have just about anybody to give his office tour because it's kind of like a museum. It's a tech right. crypto museum. But yeah. uh, as much as I think of Ed, I, I'm not a big fan of Sands, and so I'm torn because I I, I want all the success for Ed, but I, I'm slightly concerned that you know I'm hopeful that Ed will bring up Sands. I'm concerned that Sands will bring Ed down, if that's even possible. It's probably not. So it's probably all a good thing. So never mind. <laughs> well, I think the one of the things that, that I'll speak to in that, like Jeff, is that the accessibility of training and mm -hmm. the cost at which training comes with. Now, I've personally taken Sands training over the you know past 20 plus years. It found it to always be of extremely high quality. And yep. if you have a high quality product, you should command a high price. I mean, that's just fair market, right? It's fair market value. Uh, and they do offer right. high quality service. You know, that being said, uh, there are other trading options that are less expensive. You could debate whether or not they were of equal or uh, lesser or greater quality. But mm. I think that's some of the gripes today with sands is that oh, i really wish i could take sands training but it's like really expensive right right yeah and i think right. that's that's where some of the contention lies today and again yeah you gotta go back to fair market value as well right no and that's you, when, oh go ahead Lee. i was saying when you look at taking the sti courses for the for the for the degree programs i mean the the bar for entry is high you have you have to really have your act together and uh be pretty damn skilled to get into SDI and 
the the path to a degree is 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 really formidable. Um, I, I I also fret over the over the courses, even though a lot of my my uh, my cor- sans course training that my I'm lucky my agency purchases in in bulk and I can stand in line and get get the courses that don't cost my boss any money, but except for my time or travel. But yeah, it, it's it's a hard. It's gone up quite a bit in the last couple of years, and it's a hard pill for some to swallow. But the bar is really high, and I cannot take that away. And I've seen behind the scene what goes into some of those courses, as you guys have a well talking to yeah. Sands. Uh, yeah, I've written some courses for Sands. Yeah, it's 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 a lot of work. And trying to replicate that too is, you know, if you've written a course for Sands and then you're writing a course or writing something else, and you want to live up to that same standard, and they're like, wait. Why is it taking, you know, hundreds of hours per day of training to develop this? Because that's what goes into it, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh. And yeah, by and, the and way, I, I reached out. To... Go ahead. No, go ahead, Lee. I was going to say, I reached out to Ed earlier today. He's super excited about the opportunity. And he is high and dry and safe in his part of New Jersey. You know, they've had some interesting <laughs> weather. Of late. Yeah, we've had um, some flooding up here in the Northeast. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah and, I, and I guess I don't have direct knowledge mostly i I mostly hear the grumblings about sands i mean my experience with sands goes back over 20 years um you know where when i was first working for a uh effectively the first company out of nsa doing vulnerability assessments pen testing and stuff like that and you know we got they used to put out a poster and they would yeah. name mm-hmm. companies, uh, you know, and all the different, uh, you know, technologies and, 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 and fields and whatnot. And, you know, our company was listed, but, but we had to pay to get on the list. It was, it was, a it was a very fledgling pay to play program back then. Um, and, you know, I met Alan Poller. He probably doesn't remember me cause it's, you know, haven't spoken to him in over 20 years. Um, but it, it I guess my my concern about SANS is somewhat related to what you're saying, Paul. I guess sort of the the barrier to access, uh, the cost of, of the programs. But you know, I've I've known instructors that, and I've not heard the details again. But you know, they they stop doing SANS instruction for grumbly reasons. And this is all hearsay. I should probably just shut up. But you know, I I am absolutely optimistic that if there are issues with sands that need to be addressed ed will get on top of it mm. and 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 do something about it in a positive manner I, i'm i'm yeah. very confident and now, i mean that. i've i've been involved with sands and certainly am still uh very good friends with many people at sands including the instructors and mm-hmm. sands over the past 20 i started in 2000 uh mm-hmm. taking my first sands courses and they were taking flack back then for stuff too for just all kinds oh, of yeah. random stuff and yep. I, I tell you what, I, any SANS instructor is more than welcome on this show as an, just one example for a good yep. reason. They're extremely sharp, extremely knowledgeable, and very well-spoken. And, and, that, and that's what you'll find. And so hey, people have Absolutely. taken shots at SANS before, and I've always been the first to defend them as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And because they, they got clout, because they're, they're instructors especially is one thing I can pull on to say they know their stuff. I wouldn't be yeah. where I am today if I hadn't taken sands training and done stuff with sands. So there's that. Yeah. Cool. Well, I so, wish the best to Ed and, mm-hmm. uh, and the best success. And if anybody <clears throat> can, 
correct any <laughs> ill-perceived image issues that Sans has, he can do it. Yeah, and I, I challenge anyone to train that many people and not have anyone file a complaint of any kind. <laughs> right? That's just that's just the numbers game right there. Right? It yeah. happens. So, congrats, Ed. It's awesome. Yeah, this is awesome. Where do we want to go next? Uh, oh. I feel like there was another story in there that we happy had. happy birthday Linux. Happy birthday, Linux. Oh, really kind of a nerdy kind of thing. They <laughs> it, So Linux is turning 30. Uh, 5.14 is a new Linux kernel. Lots of new stuff in there, as, as always, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things was interesting, uh, memfd underscore secret. It lets applications create an area of memory that only the application can access, not even the kernel. And it's designed to uh, take care of the vulnerabilities in uh, Spectre and Meltdown, which meant cache data could be accessed uh, regardless. So MemFD mm -hmm. Secrets designed to provide, and I quote, a safe place for secrets like cryptographic keys or passwords to reside. I find it interesting that we are kind of destroying that concept of rings and permissions in, <coughs> excuse me, inside of kernels that you know there was traditionally rings there was uh inside the linux kernel i talked about linux capabilities that the root user and or the kernel two separate things right have certain permissions and that if you were in the kernel you could control everything but mm -hmm. now applications can create their own uh safe places so that even if you do have low level access to the kernel that you can't gain access to those to those things which is interesting how they're creating that because <clears throat> if I do maintain some control inside the kernel, does that mean I can access the application? And if I can access the application, can I access the, the, the controlled area mm -hmm. to bring on someone with much deeper knowledge than myself to really answer some of those questions and very well likely could be a very, a very good uh, you know, answer and explanation to that. Uh, mm -hmm. But I just find it interesting. We're kind of flipping that model uh, of permissions, not at just on its head, but it just it, it it doesn't like those basic concepts we all learned in in school of you know permissions and memory access and, and kernels and ring zero and all that stuff is is going out the window. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, right? Well, the, I mean, you've got you've got this you know application focus where the application can basically put a put a hard wall around its data, and then you've got like what Apple's doing is like nothing can get in the kernel. Right. Uh, so you got another hard wall, um, not touting Apple over anything else. It's just interesting to me that they were doing all this stuff in software, and it wasn't that long ago we were talking about putting stuff in the CPU and the hardware that would enforce those separations and provide secure areas and, and the like. And that's kind of imploded. It, it, you're right. It's changing the, changing the model dramatically. I think it's going to be exciting to see, but then again, think about this – area you've walled off that the kernel can't get to nothing can see it Damn, what a great place to hide some malware very um, true very true yeah it, our, like our traditionally the way we've thought about these security models i'll call them uh are changing and is that gonna have a positive and or negative impact in certain areas it's interesting yeah I, it, I, I'm glad they're still moving the bar, by the way. Nobody seems to be sitting on their haunches and going, well, we're done. Um, 
I mean, the article's kind of funny about pulling pulling uh, Linus out of the party, and he's like, "No, the Colonel guys have still got to do releases here. Don't don't think we're partying on it, and we're <laughs> we're working on this stuff." Um, I well, also thought, what was the reference near the end about Raspberry Pi 400 has been granted full support? Full support, yeah, I saw that. I didn't know that that <clears throat> didn't uh, garner full support. Yeah, apparently it did. Well, thought, now it does. Yeah, I mean, I thought the Pi was fully supportive. It's, it's cool. I mean, the, the 400 Pi is, is awesome. that the 400 is the one that comes in the keyboard. It's like a keyboard with a Raspberry Pi already built into it. It's pretty beefy. Oh. Yeah, it is. If you look the the Raspberry Pi 400, I was just comparing uh, in the past couple of weeks different versions of the the, the Raspberry Pi, and oh. it's the one with the keyboard. Yeah, built yeah. in. Architecturally, though, it's the same processor. As far I was just doing this research. Um, hold on, Raspberry Pi. If you Google Raspberry Pi comparison chart, because I can never keep it straight in my head the the first google result is a comparison and so the 400 is still a bcm 2711 which is the same as the raspberry pi 4b and it's still a cortex a72 arm v8 64-bit processor so it could be since the core components are the same that there's device drivers in the kernel that might be now fully supported. Some of the device drivers might be different for that platform. The same video card too, same GPU, video core six. I tell you what, I pulled up the image of that Raspberry Pi 400. It looks awfully damn mainstream. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty slick. It's pretty slick. <laughs> yeah, it's got all all the ports right on the keyboard for Ethernet, USB, display adapters, and your expansion slot on the. The Raspberry Pi. This this is not my Raspberry Pi with wiring is going everywhere and, and, right. and hubs and stuff to make it work. This is this is mainstream. Mm-hmm. Damn, that is cool. You hadn't seen those before, huh? Lee? Yeah, those those. No, wild. I I I I've been living in the dark. Obviously, um, I mean I know they're raising the bar and they're better and better Raspberry Pis. Don't don't know. Yeah. What I like is yeah. it, it well. I guess it's a double-edged sword. If I lose the keyboard, I lose the whole computer. (laughs) Keyboards around here are are scarce resource because we're always putting up new systems and something. And I'm like, I got to order another two-pack or a couple two-packs of keyboards because we've stood up new systems and we need a keyboard for it. What do you lose more often, a keyboard or a torch? Uh, Pretty equal. equal. Like power supplies (laughs) for a day. I'd say the number one thing we lose here in Security Weekly Studios is a power supply for some device. That is the <laughs> most misplaced and lost piece of equipment here in, in the studios, for sure. Light, lighters and cutters might might be a close second, but a resounding first place goes to power supplies. I, I thought <laughs> you strapped the cutters to the table so they didn't sprout legs. Well, we did. We tried to strap the power supplies to the devices and the cutters and lighters to the tables, and we still managed to lose them. <laughs> Uh, sounds stuff. like we're working with hackers That's, yep. there's worse problems Paul yes yes uh, Lee any of your stories you wanted to hit I think I hit most of most of my oh I, you hit the big ones oh. I did um, well <laughs> we were talking about uh, analogies 
Have mm-hmm. either of you watched the uh, Loki TV series in its entirety? No, it's on my list. Okay, if Sorry. you haven't, Sorry, don't, no. <laughs> don't read my story number three if you haven't watched the whole series. Once you watch the whole series okay. of Loki, then you can watch, uh, I'm sorry, read my story number three, which I didn't write. It's someone else's article. Uh, gotcha. Spoiler alert. Yeah, uh, uh, kind of relates the entity, one of the entities in the Loki TV series to the sock. And I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how much of a stretch oh. it is. I mean, it made sense when I read it. I've, of course, watched Loki. And um, you know, basically, you know, my question was, does the TVA is just like a sock analogy hold up? So you can read that and make your own determination, provided you've watched the whole series of Loki. Then go read that. Well, I mean, we don't have to talk I, about, there's a couple more articles that I, I think are worthy to point out because somebody was saying on, I forget who it was, I apologize, on the Discord, there's so many great articles. How yes. do you guys choose? Um, so just to highlight, uh, uh, and I forget who, who even posted, there's one that's how to secure your AWS infrastructure. Uh, you know, almost mm-hmm. all of my customers these days are doing something in the cloud and 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 i think everybody's wised up to the fact at this point that you know it's not simply enough to just kind of throw it to the cloud and think everything's done for you this is a pretty decent article that just talks about all this security um not even sure what the right aws terminology <laughs> services services and products uh, yeah i am policies uh, um that are VPCs. that are built into it yeah uh, you know i'm guard I'm, duty is a service i'm yep. immersed in all this stuff right now and, mm-hmm. and looking at the output and uh you know as a as a testament to you know pci data security standard you know those that claim that the rules are archaic and aren't written for the cloud yes they're not written for a cloud they're written for a traditional network architecture but the principles that you're trying to to you know protect against prevent things that you're trying to do you can do them here and very often it takes these tools that aws now offers uh, so it's 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 a it's a decent overview article. Obviously, there's a lot of detail in all the different components. But uh, it you know if you're dabbling in that, uh, it, it it's worth a read. And there's you know there's some links and references in there. I do have a question for you guys though, because uh, this has come mm-hmm. up a couple times. You know, a couple years ago, uh, you know where where. Uh, uh, disk encryption, you know, full disk encryption was kind of a thing. There was always this argument of whether that counted for protecting your data at rest. And the problem was too often that, you know, when a user logged in, whatever disk encryption uh, was occurring is sort of transparently gone. You know, you log in as a legitimate user, you have access to all the data. And I see similar parallels to the you know the encryption of containers the encryption of vpcs not to pick on aws just using them as a, as, a, as an example where they offer sort of what i would consider the equivalent of sort of full disk encryption you know full full container encryption in your opinion is are they doing it any fundamentally different architecturally different or better or is there still that sort of issue with yeah but if you're a legitimate authorized user still see your data interested in to get your opinions one way or the other are are you talking about aws specifically only because of the article here uh i I don't know that cloud or out you know google cloud or azure are doing 
I'm assuming they're doing similar things. I've worked more yeah. recently with AWS, but conceptually, uh, is securing the a container, for instance, and claiming that all your all your data is encrypted. Is that similar analogous to full disk encryption, and does it have similar uh, problems in terms of sort of authorized access and, and the encryption and becomes sort of transparent or non-existent uh, or or architecturally, technologically, is it different in a cloud uh, or container environment and, and it's not as much, much of an issue? In a so, containerized environment, um, I mean, of course, the answer is it depends because there's hundreds of AWS services. Okay, let's move on. It yeah. depends. <laughs> it depends. But uh, it, typically in a containerized environment, depending on how you're deploying it, right? But typically, uh, mm -hmm. your data in your storage is separate and decoupled from the actual container itself. So the container right. contains right. the application runtime, running code, and... Mm -hmm. Its storage can e you know can be a Docker volume. It can be an AWS EFS. I get that right. Mm -hmm. Elastic file system EFS. It can be yep. S3, or it can be a combination of those of those three. Right. Up to you to configure the roles and policies of how that data is accessed and the policies on how or if that data is encrypted. Very similarly, if you have a database and your containers are accessing the database, you would control the access to the database. And in RDS, <clears throat> I haven't looked into like exactly how it works, right? But there's like a checkbox, like encrypt the database. Obviously, the container right. is accessing the database and pulling data out. So, you know, it might probably my guess would be encrypted at rest, right? Uh, but the mm -hmm. containers and applications can still access it. So, that's based right. on my limited experience with AWS right. compared to a lot of other people, that, that's what I found. Lee. So yeah, go ahead, Lee. I mean, there's, there's three places you want to worry about encryption you want to worry about encryption at rest, encryption on the net, and encryption in use. That's in memory. Um, mm -hmm. The cloud makes the first two really easy. You can just turn it on. You don't have to worry about it. Then you can focus on the application layer controls that maybe it's an encrypted column that's only accessible, you know, when used with the right key or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. Because obviously scraping memory is a way to get at it. And you also got to worry about the trade-offs with your, you know, how lightweight or heavyweight is the are the components and what's that going to kill. Right, um, and also key management too, right? So you want to have yeah. some kind of AWS Secrets Manager or uh, there's a, a bunch of other ways to... One is like the... I forget what it's called. It's like the Systems Administrator. Um, I can't think of what it's called in AWS, but that allows you to do some level of key management. There's a c Certificate Manager service in AWS as well. So Jeff, you know, to speak to encryption, there's ways to not just protect your data, but also to help manage your keys. And of right. course, in all of those scenarios, there's two or three uh, different ways to do that in, in AWS to meet your requirements, which, you know. Yeah, I think, I think cool. you're referring to, they conveniently have a, a diagram with all the different services. Mm -hmm. AWS Secrets Manager, I think is what you're referring to, but they yeah, also that's have one. AWS Certificate Manager. And Certificate Manager, and then you can use... Uh, there's another service that I can't think of the name of it, but it, it's like a systems management. I think it might be called systems management. It was systems management also lets you uh, manage secrets as well. I've used that too. Okay. It depends on like which combination of services your application ends up using. Uh, kind of, it makes it a little more clear as to which 
technologies you want to string together. But what I'm hearing both of you say, I think, is that it's not. A, it's generally speaking not enough to just say, "Well, we're in a an encrypted container. Everything inside of it has got some level of protection." You still need to figure out what your sensitive critical data is and know where it is and protect it accordingly. That's if, correct. If that, yeah. if that means right, encryption, right. that means you do encryption. Yep. Okay. Thank you. But do you want to do you want to take you us can out? Focus Paul? more easily. Sorry, That's the win. You don't have to right. worry about all the different places. To, you can you basically can outsource the hard the, the the big wins and get some easy wins, and then you just focused on the application layer. Mm -hmm. Much right. easier to get your arms around. Gotcha. Uh, well, maybe not much easier, but it 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 makes a smaller problem set. Do you want to take us out, Paul, with the uh, unhackable Wii Mini has been hacked? Yeah, I I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't like that's a big surprise. I didn't remember the the Wii. The reason I added that story and I couldn't draw parallels was there was Wii hacking stuff going on that related to something else being hacked that. I want to say segued into like the iPhone exploits the NSO group was using or something like that, but I, I didn't have time to like trace mm. it all down. And the other thing in my kind of light uh, research in this article, I was like, I don't remember seeing a Wii Mini. It was on the market in 2012 and it was meant to, as like a, a price cut $99 option. But when I Googled for Wii Mini and I went to Amazon, they're like on sale for $500 now. Which is wow. more expensive than a traditional Wii, but at least the one on Amazon I saw was five hundred. There's some other one. Newegg has it for one forty nine, which is still more than the ninety nine. I I didn't I didn't get it. I didn't I didn't get it. So the Goose just said that there's no Wi-Fi or SD card reader in the in the Wii Mini, which I know the regular ones have. Right. Hence the idea that it wasn't hackable. So you didn't have those to attack pass, um, which is interesting. Um, I always, the, the term unhackable always makes me kind of laugh or cringe, depending. I think those always seem to fall by the wayside. Oh, right. This was like it reads a CD or DVD. Yeah. Right in the Wii Minute, yeah. And it's red and black. Yeah. Oh, well, it's obviously unhackable. It's red and black. Right. <laughs> it is a kind of cool looking device. I mean, it is kind of neat looking. Yeah, I was not familiar with this platform. Kind of interesting, right? I mean, I've got a Wii, but I do not use it very much. I got it for pretty much free, except for needed the interfaces and some other things replaced. But it works great and not very fast, but it's cool. It's awesome. Yeah, uh, so, but uh, there was an exploit known as Blue Bomb that was found. Um, oh. Exploit that takes advantage like of a flaw in, in Wii and Mini Wii's Bluetooth libraries. Right. Nice. It looks like you can get a Wii Mini on, on eBay for about 60 bucks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and yeah, so there's an article from three days ago that talks about the blue bomb uh, yeah. attack. And, and there was another Bluetooth uh, stack exploit that had uh, code execution. 16 vulnerabilities were found. This was from the University of Singapore. 
they claim it uh, at least 1,400 embedded chip components <clears throat> that can lead to an attack as well. That was one of the wow. highlights. In addition to an NPM package with 3 million uh, weekly downloads had a severe vulnerability. This was in the pack resolver uh, package that accepts JavaScript proxy configuration files and generates a function for your app to map certain domains to use a proxy. I'm reading from the Ars Technica article. So ones to uh, to kind of go read on your own. Yep, when, yeah. When Larry's, I'm sure Larry is uh, probably, I think, more familiar with the Wii Mini and the the Bluetooth vulnerability. So we'll make a note. Yeah, to oh, ask hell him. yeah. Yeah, when he, when he comes back on, talk about that. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, thank you everyone for listening and watching this edition of Paul Security Weekly. That concludes the show for this evening. Over and out. Oh. Pre-record. <laughs> I meant. Yes. It was pre-record. Every 11 seconds, there's a new ransomware attack. Oil pipelines, universities, corporations, all paying millions of dollars. Barracuda says, don't pay the ransom. Before a ransomware attack occurs, train your teams to recognize an attack and use anti-phishing technology. Protect your applications and they can't get onto your network. Simple backup and restore solutions quickly recover your data without paying the ransom. Build your ransomware protection plan now by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. That's securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. It helps if I unmute my own microphone. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. A couple of quick announcements before we get started. Security Weekly Unlocked will be held in person this December through the 5th at the Hilton Lake Buena Vista. We're excited to announce our list of speakers. Leslie Carhart, John Strand, Alyssa Miller, Dave Kennedy, O'Shea Bowens, Nick Leghorn, Justin Kohler, Jay Beal, Trenton Ivey, and Ryan Cobb, as well as many others. Please visit securityweekly.com forward slash unlocked to register and check out the Rockstar lineup. This segment is sponsored by Acunetics, an Invicti company. You can visit securityweekly.com forward slash Invicti to learn more. Joining us tonight is Benjamin Daniel Musler. Benjamin is a web application security researcher at Acunetics and joins us today to discuss securing iframes with the sandbox attribute. Ben, welcome to the show. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on the show again. Yeah, it's always nice to have you back. You bring a lot of energy to the show, Ben. I have to really make sure our seatbelts are buckled before you get started. So you may proceed uh, and give us a little background on uh, securing iframes. Okay, I think... um the best way to to talk about iframes is to first say that it stands for inline frames, and um, so so we can start with frames basically. And I would like to give some context and go back thirty years actually to look at the original frame set. Oh wow, As, you're bringing up really bad memories now. Some really <laughs> awful looking websites. <laughs> That's the point because uh, when you start with something bad, then it gets uh, better quickly. Mm. So uh, thirty years ago, we had frame sets. And as many will remember, we had frame sets for things like navigation or yeah. to have a fixed header or a fixed footer on the site. And um, we, we, we used them mostly in a bad way because it made it very difficult to bookmark pages, for instance. You know, you may remember you had a navigation menu on the left side. It was a frame set. You clicked on one page to load it a sub page. On the right side, then you bookmark the whole thing, and once you open the bookmark, you are back on the uh, on the homepage actually. Right. And that was a big problem, especially with uh, complex or very large uh, sites like um, documentation. 
Yes. And um, that is that is one reason why frame sets are no longer in use. Uh, so like I said, accessibility was one reason, usability was one reason. Uh, I suppose there were also certain commercial reasons because it affected search engine optimization. When um, that was another issue, actually, you had a search result and you click on that search result in Google or back then Yahoo or whatever it was. And um, you ended up on a sub page without a navigation menu. Does that ring some bells? I guess it does, at least uh, for me, it does. And um, yeah, bad times, as you said. Yeah, you could, get, you could get lost in the navigate. Navigation <laughs> was really hard. Now I feel really like hard. websites just generate that for you when you're developing web applications. Correct, yes. And interestingly, many websites nowadays, they still sort of look a bit like they have frame sets, but they don't have frame sets. Right. Because, I mean, we didn't have frame sets back then because it was so terrible, but uh, because we didn't have anything better. But the general usability concepts, I think they have survived because they were, they provided valid use cases. It's just that technology was so bad back then. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have, did we have JavaScript? If we did, it wasn't as prominent yeah, as it is today, right? We, we had JavaScript, actually. Um, it was used as... As, as a, a crutch, basically, to get you back to mm -hmm. the frame set page with a navigation if by accident you entered yeah. the, the, the site through the sub page. And um, that was terrible to navigate. It was bad for SEO, as I said, and for screen readers, especially because I mentioned um, accessibility. It was, it was just not um, that great. Mm. That was the so first time we, I saw JavaScript was like that. The yeah. very first time I saw Navigation. it was I was trying to figure out how to get from down below back up. That mm -hmm. when because if they didn't, yeah, okay. Sorry, Ben. <laughs> no, ex please, um, exactly, and um, that's why we no longer have frame sets, at least not in uh, on, on modern sites. Occasionally, you come across some frame set, but um, these are these are very outdated sites. So nowadays, we do not have frame sets anymore. But interestingly enough, what we still have are iframes. And they've been around for a while as well. It's, it's sort of funny because 20 years ago, um, iframes seemed a bit like the, the even worse option compared to frame sets. Iframes are like um, a frame set within a page. You can think of a little, little rectangle that contains a different page. And from a usability point of view, that sounds even worse than the original frame sets, <laughs> but somehow iframes are still around. And that's, that's a good reason for that, because iframes allow us to embed external resources. So think of widgets or um, those, those Facebook-like buttons, mm. Twitter um, tweet page buttons, but um, also um, ads, which is maybe yep. not that great, but mm. it's, it's still a viable use case so yes we have iframes and they serve a purpose and they don't get in our way because usually we do not have to interact with iframes the way we used to interact with frame sets so um iframes are also useful as a security measure mm -hmm. because um like i said they allow us to embed external resources but still, it allow, the, the iframe allows us also to uh, separate the external resource from our own page. And I mentioned ads for a minute, um, advertisements. Again, if I go back 20 years, you had little banners, and usually you just had the 
URL of the image and you would embed the image, which was not that bad, but it didn't give the advertiser much control. Of course, they could change the banner, but they couldn't do much else. And then we sometimes had scripts that you embed scripts in your website that serve the ad. But that's a security issue because you don't really want to embed somebody else's scripts in your site. Sure, we still do it, but if you can avoid it, you don't, you don't want to do it. So what we do now is we use often iframes and the iframe contains the ads. And um, the nice thing about iframes is, like I said, they allow for a certain separation of uh, content, of resources, of origins. And they have a so-called sandbox attribute. And basically, that's uh, what I'm going to talk about. And that is why I wanted to give some, some background, some context about the original frame sets and how we got here. Sweet. Yeah, I'll just uh, continue then. So um, the, the uh, sandbox attribute, like I said, you can use the sandbox attribute to tell the browser that the contents of the iframe should be restricted. And um, once you use the sandbox attribute, the browser will limit what the iframe content can do. Uh, for example, Mm, it, it will, and then you can use a sandbox attribute to lift individual restrictions like allowing scripts or allowing pop-ups, uh, allowing downloads, all these things that you may not want to allow all iframes to do because with external resources, you may not have full control over the iframe. So, and... Um, I will just uh, quickly go through uh, certain directives that you can use with iframe sandbox. And, um, and I will try to explain when you should lift certain restrictions and uh, when you might not want to do that. And these restrictions, Ben, they apply to the browser. Browsers interpreting and enforcing these restrictions, correct? Correct, yes. Browsers enforce the uh, restrictions. Nowadays, we have um, wide support for the sandbox attribute and the different values you can set. So all modern browsers will allow developers to lift restrictions. And um, maybe before I start, I should explain why you may want to lift restrictions. For example, I mentioned uh, Facebook, Twitter. If you want your users to be able to interact with the iframe that loads resources from other sites, you sometimes actually want to allow that iframe content to execute JavaScript, for instance, or you wanted to have access to cookies of that original site. Because um, to, to get back to the social media example, if you want to allow visitors to share information about your website on their social media platform, mm. then you mm. need to allow users to make use of existing authenticated sessions. And that usually works through cookies. Gotcha. So it I just, I can, I, I'm going to ask a question real mm. quick. So if you have the iframe attribute and you don't sandbox it, you can almost anything can run there, right? And, and unless like, I, yes. And, 
that is actually the reason why at some point someone thought that's not great yeah and we want to have the, the sandbox attribute right because you could you could put scripts you can put anything in there if it doesn't if it's not sandbox and then you then you can allow it in the sandbox but but if you don't do the allowance it's like a, a automatic deny when you put it in sandbox is, am i right about that or am i misremembering you're, you're absolutely right yes that was a great summary and um you, you bring up an important point because when you use an iframe to embed external content you are sort of entrusting the security of your users of your visitors to that third party mm. site and in many cases that that trust is just not warranted because you mm. can control the security of your own site but not that of your right. uh, of, the, of the site that you embed mm -hmm. say third party advertisers if they get hacked, if someone, some attacker manages to inject code into their site, then it might suddenly impact your visitors. And mm -hmm. there were many cases where malicious ads were served exactly that way. It, it sounds like you're making an art. Well, the, the, the explanation of sandboxing makes it sound like that would eventually sandbox would be the default behavior because it's the security boundary it adds. Is that a correct assumption or incorrect? Or is it too soon? Um, I understood that more as a suggestion, which sounds reasonable, but I guess it would break a lot of sites. So we have to uh, take care of backwards compatibility. And uh, I guess that's the reason why we have it a sort of opt-in with the sandbox attribute. And then you can, again, opt out of certain individual restrictions, which gives you more uh, granular control over what you want to actually allow go ahead yeah sorry Ben. carry on yeah and um so uh, just just to give an example um there is one sandbox directive that is called allow forms mm -hmm. and it will allow the visitor to submit a form that is contained within the iframe now, the important thing to keep in mind here is it uh, not having the directive will not block the form being visible, but it will just um, not allow you to submit the form. And now the question is, why would you actually want to block forms? Why would you want to uh, allow forms? And one example is that if you have an iframe in your own website and it points to an external resource, it shows a form where users can enter say their name their email address then again you, you somehow you inherit trust you know a visitor sees that form on your site they don't even know it's an iframe they don't even know it's an external resource they don't know that if they enter their name if they enter their email address and submit that form it will not be submitted to you but to a third party and maybe you just don't want to give advertisers or whatever content you embed with an iframe, you just don't want to give them the opportunity to ask users for information like that. So it's about trust, but it's about um, a data to some degree. It could be about social engineering if uh, an attacker manages to compromise the advertiser's site and then uh, displays an, a form. And of course, it could be about phishing as well, because mm. if you have a phishing campaign and now the fisher can actually point users to your site, which contains an iframe, which in turn contains a form. 
and to end users, it's just not that clear where the form is actually posting data. But again, we have the allow forms directive, so there has to be a good reason why we would allow iframes to accept a form input. Now, one example would be, and, and that is an example that we, we see very often, uh, payment processors. You know, if you have, um, let's say you have an, an online store, you have an e-commerce site, and you want to accept credit cards, and you want to accept um, other payment options, but you want visitors to stay on your site, there are some implementations where you use an iframe to embed that payment form to allow users to enter their uh, payment information. I think that is a good use case to allow form input. Um, others would be, um, let's say, newsletters. Maybe you have an email newsletter, which is handled by an external provider. You want people to be able to sign up and you embed that form so that users submit their email addresses directly to that newsletter service Could for, for data protection that you do not have to handle that data yourself, uh, PII, whatever. Uh, similarly, there, there are shout boxes or these little chat windows that you embed that uh, act like a form that you might want to embed as an iframe. So uh, there are many good reasons why you want to allow forms to be uh, submitted in an iframe. And if you want to do that and still benefit from the, uh, the sandbox protection, you can use the allow forms directive to do that. Does that does the iframe actually adhere to the the standard of the page? Or I, I'm trying. I, I set one of these things up a long time ago, but it seemed like it didn't adhere to the standard. Like if the page was a HTTPS page, the iframe iframe was not necessarily also HTTPS. It, it could also it could be unencrypted. Was that is that? Am I I may be misremembering that? No, I think you're on something. Well, if you're remembering that it would load the iframe, that was the case, yes. Depends a bit on how far back your memories go, because nowadays it would um, count as mixed content. Mm. And um, I'm not saying all browsers are going to block it, but some yeah. browsers, many browsers will block it. Um, but uh, you, you mentioned memory. So if you go, I think, five or 10 years back, right. then yes, you, you would see that. However, for form submissions, I would imagine even back then, most browsers would warn you that you're about to submit content through an unencrypted connection if the uh, the parent page, the main page, was served over an okay. encrypted connection. I just remember I was setting up some kind of a payment thing that was really early, and we yeah. got like a we got like a plug-in. For, I had to learn how to do this, and that was when I was learning about iframes because it was like, how do we get this to work? And put it in there and I, yeah, I think it was before the browsers would automatically reject that unencrypted content because we noticed that and we thought well the page is secure and then I started thinking was well, it but is this frame thing secure because I didn't really understand it and I started doing some experiments on it and it was not and I was like okay this is bad yeah we wouldn't want to do this so, hold on I get that right so um, your site was secure but the payment processor was unencrypted yeah that is. It, it was it was yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> it was about that was probably like 15 years ago and it was <laughs> It was really not a good idea, and it was when people were first starting to ask those kind of questions. And honestly, everybody thought I was crazy because I was running a, a secure page, 
for that at all. You know, it was just, and the, and the processor we were using was just like, it wasn't like a, you know, credit card company. It was like a third party that was going to do this through a bank. Th- and, and they were like, you want to do what? And I was like, can we encrypt this? And they were like, uh, I don't think so. That's not going to work. So yeah, it was a little scary. It's amazing. Cause uh, by that time, SSL was around for yeah, but people were people 25 years people maybe, weren't using it, yeah. and, and it was considered an overhead problem. It was considered a complication that you yep. didn't need, and and these processors were trying to go for maximum speed, and I guess a lot of people didn't understand it and support it, so they just hadn't mm-hmm. switched it over. It was just some old dinky company that was like a locally owned company that was supporting a conference. And I was like, yeah, but you're sending this payment information over like public airways, and they were like, yeah, but it's on the internet. <laughs> Therefore, it's secure. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like very early days, yes. Mm, yeah, early days. And I guess probably by now, PCI DSS would break that company immediately. So. Probably. But anyway, uh, let me continue. There are other interesting directives that I would like to talk about for a bit. Uh, for instance, there is allow models, which allows you to... That's that's another interesting point, actually. Um, sandbox will block things like the JavaScript alert, like the JavaScript prompt, like the JavaScript confirm. And um, for those listeners who don't really know what they do, alert is like, um, like a message box and prompt is like um, like an input box. It's like a message box with a little text box. They can type in uh, very simple numbers or letters. And um, those are blocked, and they are blocked for a good reason, because once they are visible, you are unable to interact with the underlying page. So um, to give an example, you have an iframe to some advertiser, and without the sandbox or with the allow models directive, the advertiser would be able to show sort of a pop-up window that you have to interact with just to get back to the, the parent page. And um, obviously, that is not what you want to uh, allow most iframes to do. So you have to be careful here. Now, there are reasons to to allow that. I think I don't see any. But um, the point is, you need to be careful when you when you use that directive, because it takes focus away, and it's also misleading about where that message box is coming from. And also in the case of the uh, the prompt window, like I said, you can enter something. It's not always clear where that information is going. So um, a malicious advertiser or a hacked advertiser, uh, they might actually show that prompt window through an iframe, ask for some personal information, and the victim would think that this this window came from your site. So that's the reason why it's being blocked by default with the the sandbox attribute. And why you uh, why in general we have to be careful about, about this one. Uh, there is a non-malicious problem with this, and that's um, that some some websites might actually show error messages in the form of an alert window, mm-hmm. especially in debug mode. And um, you don't want to have somebody else's error message on your uh, on on your homepage, basically. So there's there's very very little reason to allow for alerts for prompts or for um, confirmed windows to be allowed from iframes don't some people use that though as a kind of restrictor so they they pop that up and make you like you got to put your name in so they pop a a box of i don't uh, with that and you you can't get back onto the page without doing it 
they do, and it's, it's a terrible thing. So um, <laughs> don't allow it. Now wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, like please re-enter your password. Would well, be how, mine, I, if I were my, to construct an attack, I'd be like, legit. hey, your session timed out. Please enter Mine was password. legit. I, they mm. had to put their hotel room number in. So right. I had to pop it up. And the, the, the hotel was going to charge us by the user. And so we were trying to associate it with rooms from our blocks. I mean, obviously, they could lie. We didn't do any validation. of it, But it, these right. were like academics. They didn't even know what was going on. It just popped. I mean, yeah, you could have you hacked them to pieces. But it just popped a little window. Uh, 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 it shifted focus, popped open a box and said, please enter your room number. And we were using that mm. to collect data about people that were using our uh, Wi-Fi internet at the conference hotel ballroom. And we just put that together. It was probably terribly coded, but they weren't paying me very much. In fact, they weren't paying me at all. So, <laughs> are, Well, I'm are, sure there are, are some uh, great reasons, but <laughs> I think in most, in, in most cases, you don't want to allow um, iframes or iframe content to do that. That's what I like to, to hear. <laughs> yeah. yeah, statute of limitations run out on that a while ago, so it'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh. My question is, with, within the iframe sandboxing settings, are there any things that we shouldn't do because it could allow the iframe to escape the sandbox? Ooh. Yes, there is. And actually, I was hoping to get to that in about 10 minutes. Oh, that's so, uh, you can Well, I can wait. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I want to, I want to lay the framework um, so that we, we all understand how it might be possible to escape the iframe. And um, so I'll just uh, talk about another interesting directive. Then we're almost 50% there. And then I'll talk about the second directive that allows us to escape the iframe. Uh, so the first one actually is um, the allow scripts, because and, and now it gets interesting with scripting, with JavaScript in iframes. Um, the directive is called allow scripts, which is quite straightforward. And I think nowadays it would be hard-pressed to find useful widgets that we embed with an iframe that do not use JavaScript. So in many, if not most cases, we have to allow scripts even in a sandboxed iframe. So um, that is actually one of the reasons what, uh, why many developers who for the first time embed some external iframe code um, they, they run into issues once they use Sandbox because nothing works. So they Google a solution and they just add allow scripts and then they add some other directives, they add some other permissions just to make sure that things work basically. But it's always important to be aware of security implications. And in the case of allow scripts and in the case of JavaScript, like I said, Nowadays, it will be uh, very difficult to find useful content that can be embedded that does not need JavaScript. So, allow scripts is almost um, almost necessary. And I think it's more useful to think about it in a way, when do I not need it? Mm. I mean, when do I not need uh, JavaScript? And if I'm sure that I do not need JavaScript because I'm just embedding some static image or something like that, then it doesn't hurt. Yeah, but in general, I think... Even yep. with ads, Ben, those aren't just an image. It's usually JavaScript mm -hmm. wrapped around it for the tracking links and things of that nature. Absolutely, yes. And tracking, um, like you said, yep. pretty much anything nowadays needs JavaScript. There are some great browser extensions to uh, disable JavaScript on embedded iframes on third-party content in general. Uh, they make navigation much easier, but of course, it's not that great for commercial reasons. So you yeah, I mean, ad, ad blockers will do that, but then a lot of sites complain 
that you have an ad blocker. So that actually makes me want to go find one that blocks an iframe with JavaScript from a third party resource. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the site would know that I'm running an ad if it's not an ad blocker plugin. It would. It's a bit of a cat and mouse game. Yeah. You have that ad blocker, then the site discovers that you're using an ad blocker, then you install some um, some some whitelist on your ad blocker or some blacklist that blocks certain content of that page that actually determines if you're using an ad blocker. And yeah, like I said, cat and mouse game. So right. Yeah, because it goes the yeah. other way. Sometimes I have to disable an ad blocker on a site that doesn't have ads, but it thinks they're ads, so mm-hmm. it's blocking the functionality. And, and sometimes you wonder, was it not much nicer to navigate the web like 20 years ago? Right. Okay, we yeah. have frame sets, but at least we didn't yeah. have that. That's true. So, <laughs> yeah. And um, then there is, so, so I was just talking about um, allow scripts. Now, another interesting directive is the allow same origin directive. Because what the sandbox does is, and now it's getting a bit more technical, what the sandbox does is it forces a different, uh, or it treats the iframe content as if it were on a different origin, mm. even if it's actually on the same site. Mm. So uh, let's say you're example.org, you have an iframe, and that iframe uh, refers to example.org slash page two. And it will still treat that iframe as a different origin, even if it's on the same site. Or let's say you have um, an iframe that points to, again, I use the, the social media site as an example. Um, it, it might not allow the cookie access that you need. So with the allow same origin, you actually allow the iframe site uh, to access that iframe in the context of um, same origin policy. And is that is that session specific or cookie specific or most sessions handled by cookies anyhow? That was a bit of a convoluted question. If you yeah, like does the do- uh, does the origin policy simply restrict the access to cookies or does it restrict access to the session in general? But is the session really just maintained by cookie? session cookies anyhow uh, the the entire browsing context i would call it okay so, so it's, it's not just about so it's not just about cookies gotcha mm, but but again and the interesting thing is that you suddenly have your iframe on a different origin even if it's on the same if it has the same origin and that is something that trips up a lot of first-time users of the the sandbox attribute mm. which is why we have the allow same origin attribute now and um, now I get back to what I said about 10 minutes ago, because 10 minutes ago, I promised that I would get back to it in 10 minutes. And that time has come. If we combine the allow scripts directive with the allow um, same origin directive, then when the embedded page has the same origin as the page containing the iframe, then it would be possible for the iframe page to use scripting to break out of that iframe. Yeah, so basically... And I'm, I'm my, not, sure who, not sure who asked that question, but I hope that answers the uh, the question. Yeah, so it means my my code runs in the context of that session, which means it can do anything that the user or the application can do in that, mm-hmm. in that context. Uh, pretty much, yes. And similarly, you have things like allow top navigation, which effectively allows the 
the page to navigate or, or load content um, to the top-level browsing context. So if, if the keyword, if this directive is not used, then this operation is not allowed. So you have to you have to really opt in here in order to be able to navigate the parent from within the iframe, and that requires a lot of trust. It uh, allows basically the iframe to you could just say redirect the the visitor. Right. And so that's why we have. By the way, we have something else. We have. Um, a version of allow top navigation that requires user activation or user interaction. Uh, it's called by user activation, but personally, I think user interaction is a bit, um, uh, it's probably the, um, more descriptive of how it works. And it allows for additional granularity because it does not allow the iframe to simply break out and redirect unsuspecting users. So if, if you have a use case where your iframe really requires to break out to, to change the top navigation, it might be best to use the user activation option just from a, from a security, but also a user experience point of view. Yeah, that could be a pretty dangerous and efficient context. If I go to a legitimate website, it loads a malicious iframe that then redirects me to a copy of that page that's controlled by an attacker. Mm -hmm. That could be a pretty dangerous phishing attack. Absolutely, yes. Any... And um, we, we see that a lot of malicious ads that actually do that. Mm -hmm. And um, it could all be avoided if the, the main website that embeds the iframe did not use this directive. But like I said, many, um, in many uh, cases, the directives are being used without being fully understood. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. But it happens because obviously developers want things to work. So you just um, become a bit more permissive in what you do, and maybe you don't fully understand what the the ultimate impact of that directive can be once the iframe content turns malicious. So, what's the security context if my iframe pops up a, a pop up or a new tab or window within the browser? Is that then? Is it get can it reach back to the other stuff or is it still isolated and, and bound by other security policies? Is that a risk? Well, um, it's definitely it's definitely a risk from the the user experience point of view because when you as a user are on a website, then you sort of trust what is happening on that website. And uh, I think the, the the example you mentioned was a pop up. If you have a pop up or popping up that looks a lot like the website that resembles the original website that you are browsing, then it becomes very easy to trust that page, even though it's actually not the the site that you think you are browsing. And similarly, there for example, there's the allow downloads directive as well, um, which allows iframes to spawn download windows. And that's a great, great way to uh, spread malware if you're not mm -hmm. careful. <laughs> so lo lots of ways you could get in trouble, but this still seems like in total, we really should be encouraging use of this when we're using iframes to really control what they can do. Absolutely, yes. Um, my suggestion is use the, the sandbox attribute and and I think we, we in general, we should not be too permissive in um, what we allow to happen within the, the sandbox. 
there should be a clear use case for each and every single directive that we set within the iframe attribute. Because otherwise, um, if you allow everything, what is the purpose of the sandbox? Oh, you, now you're reminding me back of some application development where you set a bunch of permissions and you use them all the time because they just work rather than mm -hmm. explicitly deciding what should be on or off. It and, sounds and like they, the easiest path here is to not do all that stuff because the default lets just about everything run. And so people get in the habit of doing that. And then when they try this, it, it doesn't work. And then they immediately fall back to just get rid of the sandbox attribute and it'll work. And then you got problems. Right. Yes. And um, so, in general, I am what we what we see the three I would say the three most common misconfigurations, or at least problematic configuration. Obviously, the one is iframes with external resources that have no sandbox at all. That is a problem. But then we have also sandboxes that allow scripts and allow same origin, which is what I've mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, which which allows the iframe basically to break out of the iframe and therefore to break out of the sandbox as well. And um, the, the third one is actually when you have external resources being loaded into an iframe that use allow scripts or allow top navigation or um, yes, or um, allow pop-ups to escape sandbox because it's, it might be possible for pop-ups to escape the sandbox. I mean, there are also some some not really security specific directives in sandbox. So it's not all that bad if you give some permissions. If you're a little lenient, uh, for example, you can you, know, you can allow iframes to lock screen orientation. You know, when you have a tablet or a smartphone, um, websites may want to lock the the automatic orientation when when you um, change the position of your tablet. And there may be good reasons for that. For example, I'm aware of one government site, they publish laws as PDFs and they embed it into an iframe. Now, if you if you turn your tablet around by 90 degrees, then uh, suddenly it, it cuts off certain pieces of the, the legal document, mm -hmm. which is not so great when you want to rely on a law and you see only half of it. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so so there's, a, there's a good use case for um, allowing iframes to lock the orientation of the page but i think those are edge cases um, similarly you can you can uh, allow iframes to lock the pointer which basically gives the iframe the the permission to access mouse movements beyond the edges of the iframe there are some privacy mm. risks here uh, depending on the the surrounding web page i mean the page that surrounds that embeds the iframe but there are also some good reasons. Let's say you have uh, you're embedding games in your website or very specialized applications. So there may be good reasons for that as well. So, is anybody going to produce a, a guide, best practices, white paper for this? Because it sure seems like I could get tripped up if I didn't have really good guidance. That's a good point. Lee. There is good guidance out there. I think the easiest way is just to uh, use Indicti security products because we check for a lot of common co misconfigurations and we check for um, room for optimization. So we look at all the iframes that we can find on a website, which are usually plenty. Uh, we check all of them. We check for the the context of the iframe. We check for the the configuration of the iframe, and if anything seems off. 
then we not only alert the user, but we also provide some input, some suggestion on how to improve the iframe sandbox configuration. Nice. I need all the help I can get. <laughs> so, well, yeah, because we kind of have a matrix, right, of different options that could. Are there combinations that are worse than other combinations? Or, like, basically, obviously, no sandboxing would allow for all of the bad things to happen? <laughs> I would say the. The one real, really bad uh, combination is allow scripts and allow same origin. Yeah. Because when you have script access to something that is uh, treated as the same origin, then yes, bad things can happen. Yeah. Essentially, you're letting someone else write your web application for you yep. if they so choose. <laughs> Pretty much, yes. Yeah. And giving them access to everything on your system at the same time. <laughs> right. Yeah. The same origin for me was really scary. Yeah. That's. Uh Speaking of letting somebody else writing your website for you, one interesting observation might be that many sandbox problems happen when the web page is dynamically creating iframes because for developers, I guess it's easier to set up the correct sandbox configuration when you define or when you write the static HTML code than when you create iframes dynamically with JavaScript on the fly. So um, that is something that can be difficult to find in code because, like I said, it's created dynamically. And in that case, it will be much easier to discover misconfigurations when you're using a dust tool like uh, Akinetics or NetSparker. Yeah, scanning in runtime is, you still need to do that. I think we'll always need to do that because, yeah. you know, like you said, Ben, you're, the ultimate code and configuration that runs is different from when you've scanned those various other environments or the components individually. It's like when it all comes together in production, things are different. Very true. I mean, just think of iframes that load um, dynamic content. And by dynamic, I mean uh, dynamic URLs. You might have a website where for some reason you, uh, you load an iframe with user provided URLs. Then it's very difficult to tell during development, will it be a local or I mean, a, a page on the same origin, or will it be an external origin? And those are things that you can only really assess with a dust tool like uh, Akinetics or NetSparker. There was that that was stuff that got uh, there was some DNS poisoning type stuff on that too, right? That was poisoning those the URLs that were getting pulled into the frames, and and I, I remember reading something about that where it's like you poison the name of what's going in the frame locally, and then that it pulls up a different frame. It, it looks like that you know that's what's supposed to be there, but it's really something else. I think there was something where. The, the malicious website generates a lot of iframes on the fly yeah. to basically create those DNS requests. Yeah, it was something like that. I was, just, I was remembering I read something and was going, hey, I probably have that. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not your go-to web design. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of different components and a lot of different ways to put all these pieces together. So, yeah. And, and iframes are, are common. I mean, they're in most websites you visit yep. today, I would imagine, right? And most people, I think, avoid, they don't use what, what Ben's talking mm -hmm. about at all because it's just, A, it sounds complicated because it's, you know, so mm -hmm. sandboxing and people say, well, I don't know if I want to get involved in that. I've got this working. I don't want to mess with it. And then because this is how they've always done it and it's hard to get them to shift. Mm -hmm. 
And once you start using Sandbox for the first time, something is almost inevitably going to break. Yep, right. Then you have to figure out how to do it properly, but it's worth it. It's a bit like a content security policy. You add one to your site for the first time, something's going to break. But once you figure out how to do it right, uh, you really increase the security mm -hmm. of your website and um, of your visitors as well. And that's, that's why it's important to have security people in your design team too, because a lot of times design people just do it the way they've always done it, the way that works fastest. And, you know, getting people in there to say, you really need to be doing this. Maybe they'll take the time to fix it. Correct. Yes. Alternatively, uh, have a dust tool that tells you that something needs to be changed. Well, yeah. I mean, that ought to be part of your audit, right? I mean, you should be, you should be doing that pretty regular. You should, yes. I mean, because after all, um, the context can change. Uh, like I said, you might be uh, suddenly be loading external content in your iframe, and you used to load only uh, same origin content, and then you may have to change your sandbox directive mm -hmm. a little bit. And a lot of that's gotten even more automated with all that dynamic stuff too, right? So you don't know what the third, if you're pulling in third-party stuff, that stuff can change over time as well. So you, you have to kind of keep up with it on a regular basis. That would be my policy recommendation. Yes, depends a bit on how you're lenient your sandbox directives are to begin with. If you start with a very strict policy, then you may not have to review it all the time. But if you are um, if you if you permit a lot of things then yes yeah. you should review that regularly because uh, as you said uh, the the iframe content might change over time and the trustworthiness how, of advertisers how might often, change as well how often do you think people should do that depends a bit on the target depends a bit on um, how important the target is if it's your if it's your main website uh, do it as often as possible in the sense that it makes um, sense in the in the overall business context but in general use a dust tool that allows for schedule scans so you don't even have to think about it sounding a little bit like we need to treat this in the category of web application scans in terms of need to do this, need to verify it. Yes, and uh, like I said, if you use the right uh, scanner, then um, that scanner should take care of it as well. Because from a scanner perspective, it is very easy to uh, look at the DOM, to look at the doc document object model of the web pages, and to recognize iframes as such. And then it's very easy to look at sandbox configurations and sandbox um, and, and iframe content, iframe resources. And it's much easier to uh, do that automatically than to even try and do it manually. It's good stuff, Ben. Um, <clears throat> do you have a, a blog post to reference on this or is this more about you know what's kind of built into the product on in terms of guidance for the user? Both actually, um, it's built into the product, so users don't even have to think about it if they don't want to. If they do want to think about it, uh, just run a search for Akinetics iframes or Akinetics sandbox, and you'll find some blog posts. You'll find um, a blog post with advice and general guidance on how you to secure your website. Fantastic. Ben, thank you so much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. Thanks for having me. Again, this segment is sponsored by Invicti. You can visit securityweekly.com forward slash Invicti to learn more. That will conclude this edition of Paul Security Weekly. Thanks everyone for listening and watching. Over and out.